podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Nesson Dorma, your hit of 80s and 90s football. I'm Gary Naylor, and I'm joined tonight by Nesson Dorma regular, Mike Gibbons. Hello, Mike. Hi, Gary. How are you doing? I'm okay. I hope you are too, Mike. Yeah, very well, thanks. And a special guest appearance by the semi-regular, but always welcome, Scott Murray. How are you, Scott? Not so bad, Gary. Thank you for having me again. Delighted to host. So, <laughs> on this episode, our player of the pod will be Eric Gates, and I'm going to cut to an interview I did with a friend of mine, Paul Howarth, for whom Eric Gates is his favourite player. So that's coming up in a moment. Then in the main body of the pod, we'll be looking at the last day of the 93-94 season, which had thrills and spills, and for one of the contributors tonight, an elevated heart rate for almost two hours. But we'll begin by thanking our... Patreons. We can't really do this without you, and our gratitude is undying. So thank you to Ben Aspinall and Gary Robinson, and also to John Wood, whose munificence is such that he gets this special tribute. Yep, so we've written a a player profile for uh, John Wood. So, yeah, John Wood, or John Woody Wood, as he's known in the uh, dressing room, I fancy John as a kind of bone-shaking left-back, like Stuart Pearce or Julian Dix. Uh, Spends his whole career at Norwich, launching wingers into all corners of Norfolk. Um, 700 appearances for the club, uh, which would have been a lot higher were he not regularly suspended for his uh, direct action in stopping wingers coming at him. And called into one England squad, but after sending Chris Waddle into orbit in training, never invited back, sadly. (laughs) Yes, well, I, I, I think that's that's a very reasonable expectation. It's also, I think, the exact career of Francis Benali, but I'm not absolutely <laughs> certain on that one. Joining me for the first part of the pod is Paul Howarth. Paul, I'm delighted to welcome you to Ness and Dorma. How are you, sir? Very well, Gary. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here, of course. Well, well, we're, we're delighted too. And the reason I'm calling you, uh, Paul, for this uh, pod is that you have a, a, a sort of specialist knowledge. If it were mastermind, you would be Ipswich early 80s. So um, do you want to do that? something that you've done at least a couple of times for me and I always enjoy, which is to name that great Bobby Robson-led Ipswich Town side of the early eighties. Yeah, it's it's usually unprompted, isn't it? I, it I will is do it to, to anyone who will listen, and certainly and certainly sometimes those who won't. Uh, well, it goes like this: Cooper, Burley, Mills, Butcher, Osman, Murin, Tyson, Walk, Gates, Mariner, Brazil, and that was the eleven that conquered Europe, winning the UEFA Cup in nineteen eighty-one, more or less. More or less, fantastic, and there's some splendid names there, and one of the perhaps less celebrated, certainly amongst those who would not class themselves as as Ipswich Town cognoscenti, would be <laughs> the man that you gave a little extra emphasis to, uh, Eric Gates. Now I'll introduce I'll introduce him from the 
perspective of someone who's sort of on the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a huge fan of, of Eric Gates. Um, he had the mien of one of those kind of H-block hunger strikers. Uh, <laughs> you know, there was the straggly hair, the snaggle teeth, and the uh, and a certain look. And what was he, 10 stone dripping wet, I'd guess? <laughs> if that. But out of this uh, unprepossessing figure alongside, you know, Colossus, like sort of Terry Butcher and Kevin Beatty and people like that, mm. came this sort of well of creativity, um, uh, and what what would now be called playing in the hole, which we then called a kind of number ten or something. Mm. And um, when the the English football is examined, it's often, especially at that time, there are complaints that, that there wasn't enough. There weren't enough technical players. There wasn't enough imagination, and and so on. And you know, Glenn Hoddle always gets a, a mention. And you know, I I, I have mixed mm. views about Glenn Hoddle. Um, but a contemporary Eric Gates, as you as you you say there, uh, was an absolute heartbeat of a side that won in Europe that came heartbreakingly close to mm. winning the first division title, and yet. He's largely, I would suggest, forgotten outside of, of the Northeast, where he went to Sunderland and later became That's a right. radio personality. But his, his salad days were at Ipswich. So, so Paul, uh, Eric Gates, what's the story? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you've given him a good, uh, a good intro there, Gary. And um, it's, it's, it's strange now, isn't it, to think of Ipswich uh, in the same sentence as the word glamorous. But there was, there was a degree of glamour about that side that sort of formulated, formed through the 70s and into the early 80s. Um, not least the two Dutch lads, Buren and Tyson, who Bobby Robson brought in. There weren't too many uh, continental players in the English game at that time. Uh, Paul Mariner was a bit of a poster boy and all that sort of stuff. Um, and yet there he was, as you say, the snaggletoothed genius, uh, Eric Gates. Um, you know, not anything but glamorous, I suppose. And and probably a bit overlooked, even within that side. I mean, the likes of John Walk, who I think equaled uh, the, the then scoring record in Europe in 1981, scoring 14 goals. You know, players like that were getting a lot of attention. Um, and Franz Tyson was winning awards, the Players' Awards, and Walkie was winning similar. And, uh, you know, Gates, he just went about his business. And I, I don't know whether it's something about me and my personality, but I've always quite liked an underdog. And so um, he became and has remained my favourite ever Ipswich player, uh, you know, with with a high degree of competition, shall we say, from all those others we mentioned. And, you know, in fact, if I think back to one of the early games, so just to put it into context for your listeners, um, I was born in Ipswich, accident of birth. So that, that meant I was Ipswich uh, through and through, whether I liked it or not. Um, but then we moved to Devon when I was about two years old. So quite difficult for me to see games. The first game I saw was 1980, which was a, a thrilling nil-nil draw. <laughs> um, and uh, and then the next game that I saw wasn't until the first game of the 1983-84 season. Um, so a little bit after the uh, the heyday, I suppose, and you know that, that sort of storied 81 team. Um, but Gatesy was still there. Um, and I think he'd been injured for, for a good number of months. And we were playing, uh, we were playing Spurs, uh, featuring the aforementioned Glenn Hoddle, um, among others. Um, and we just took him to, we took him to the cleaners. We've beaten three, one and Gates scored two. He was teed up both times by Mariner, I think. And I think Mariner was delighted to have his partner in crime back, uh, after a few months on the sidelines. Um, so I have quite vivid memories of that day. It was a, a great day. 
Um, and that just sort of cemented my, my love for the little chap, really. Um, but if I think about him more generally, um, what he brought to that side, you know, I think he was a little bit ahead of his time, really. You mentioned playing in what, you know, playing in the hole or the false nine, or I don't even know what that means. But, you know, all those sorts of positions that are just behind either one or two strikers. It typically was behind two strikers with him because, you know, 81 was, was Mariner in Brazil. And he, he would just sort of float in between the midfield and the forward line, um, difficult to pick up for defenders. And another abiding memory I have of him across those years, and my dad will, uh, will well, it's, it's my dad's memory as well, but it's just the, the little dipping shots from the edge of the area, which um, they look like they happen by accident, but it happened too often for it to be an accident, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, there's the quite, a fa- quite a famous game where Gates scored both our goals. We drew two each at Anfield. We never won at Anfield, by the way, uh, in those days for, for ages and ages. But he scored two scorches, one, I think, from a free kick and one where he just sort of uh, it, it bounced up to him and across him. And he just sort of uh, volleyed it into the corner, dipping as it went. And that was classic Gates, I would say, um, that little dipper from the edge of the area. Nice ball into Davre. Here's Gates. Oh, that's a tremendous goal. But you also mentioned that, you know, he, he was a very sort of technical um, player and I don't think it's um, stretching the bounds of credibility too much to to put him alongside the likes of um, if you think of of uh, uh, Xavi for example at uh, Barcelona that um, short in stature uh, but good with both feet plays with his head up make he really did make that team tick if I think back to that early 80s team um, and you know I just think uh, yeah. I mean, I know that you're a fan from your intro there, and um, I would wholeheartedly agree and think that he deserves more than more than he got in his career. And he got two England caps, by the way, which uh, some would say is not nearly enough for a man of his ability. Um, and, and certainly the, the the wider football community, really. So here we go. At least we're putting him back in the spotlight <laughs> after a fashion. Well, that's that's very much the sort of raison d'etre of our, our player of the part. We do go for the occasional superstar, but we often like to dip into the past and, and find someone and, and, and shine a, a light on them. I, I think um, there's a certain kind of player. I think everybody has a, a type when it comes to players as well as it, when it comes to, shall we say, other things. And um, he... I've often talked about Paul Merson on the uh, on Nassim Dorma because mm-hmm. Merson was a, a, another player. He got much more recognition than, than Gates, and um, obviously he he won more uh, as well. Uh, but it, it's it's that kind of player, as you say, with with the head up, um, always available when the midfield is mm. looking for a pass, and it, it shortens the game. Um, it allows the midfield to pass the ball 10 yards instead of 20 to a forward and that and then take it on the half turn scuttle a few uh, yards that brings out the defenders and then play the ball into the gaps that uh, mm. that can be exploited either in the channels or or by a, a center forward or an overlapping fullback mm. and i think you're right to to talk about the likes of of Xavi um not because Eric Gates was in the class of an all-time great. He was a he was an outstanding player, but nobody's saying mm. he's an all-time great like like Javi. But there are very few players who seem comfortable in that role of of taking the ball, as you say, between the lines, scuttling forward and making the pass. Because the cheap way of playing 
is to take the ball there and then lay it off or knock it sideways. But mm. the best players in that role just have that ability to go on the half turn and either pick up a cheap free kick or, uh, in those days, less often because you were allowed <laughs> to clatter a man on the half turn. Yeah. Um, but uh, So they had to be brave, and the likes of Gates were, were brave. Scuttle forward and then make that incisive... Uh, pass. What, why he do was you... brave. He was brave, Gary. Yeah. And and actually, you've reminded me there. There was an incident where the, the the game probably shouldn't have taken place. I forget who we were playing, but it was played basically on a frozen pitch. Yeah. And being a, a bit of a nutter as well as a as as well as a hugely gifted footballer, um, Gates thought nothing of sliding in to try and win the ball, a slide tackle, and he lacerated his his thigh doing so. So. Uh, but it's hearing you talk about it there and, and, and putting him alongside the likes of Glenn Hoddle and people like that. I've never really thought about this, but I think my uh, talking about having having a sort of type of player that you tend to like. I think I actually tend to like the Hoddle like player, the Rolls Royce in midfield, mm. the strollers. Um, and it's difficult to think of Gates like that because probably because of his physicality, the way he was he was short, he was unusual looking. He, he just had the air of a, of a kind of a scrapper and a battler. Um, at which he was, um, reference the lacerated thigh <laughs> incident. Um, but I think I think there was more to him than that. I think it's probably a bit um, a bit lazy to to make that conclusion because of the way he looked. There was more to him than that, and he did, as you say, he was he was great at because um, I always love it when teams pass it from the back. You want someone coming to get the ball off the yeah. defender who's comfortable on the ball, linking um, for, forward and, and back lines. Um, and Gates, now I don't, I can't remember because I didn't see him enough times, to be perfectly honest. But in my mind's eye, that's the sort of thing that he would do for the team. He would come and get it off, say, Terry Butcher, who was bringing it out. He would, um, you know, maybe take it with his back to, to the opposition's goal, but very quickly get his head up to either spread it wide or uh, make a small run and, and slot it through the middle or something like that. But so I think actually, despite how he looked, you could make a case for putting him in that category of uh, sort of purring Rolls Royce type um, attacking midfielders or, or or forwards. Yeah, I mean his his style of play was less like Hoddle, who, as you say, was a court, mm. a sort of regista. I suppose mm. he played he played fairly deep uh, very often and joined the attack later and sprayed much longer passes. Where I have I have Gates much more as a kind of second forward. He didn't play quite as far forward as Kenny Dalgleish, but he had some of Dalgleish's ability to make pretty average passes look good by by the excellence of a first touch. And then yeah. that footballing intelligence to to be able to to assess instantly where a defence had its gaps and then play positively at all times in, in carrying that ball and then making the pass. I guess, it, again, it, the comparison isn't exactly the same. I guess someone like Peter Beardsley, who was more a forward who dropped deep yeah. as opposed to Gates, who was more a midfielder who pushed forward. And you, I don't know. I, I think I think actually Beardsley is a good comparison. Yeah. That's, that's probably the closest that I can think of. That's, I think that's a really good one. So I, I would I would respectfully disagree. I think Gates was a forward player who tended to play just off, typically at a front two, yeah. rather than a, a midfielder who was good at getting forward, a la Gerard or, or people yeah. like that. Or, or yeah, I think or indeed Hoddle. I yeah. think that's I think that's that's probably correct. But where I'm 
kind of making the, the comparison is that Peter Beardsley started as a forward and through his career, and I, I saw him later at Everton, he kind of mm. played deeper and deeper in the in the pitch. If you've got sort of Beardsley's yep. ca- career uh, heat map, um, you yeah. would see each year going deeper, where Gates yeah. started out as a more authentic midfielder um, at sort of 17, 18, first coming into the Ipswich side and then being established probably around 20, and, and moved further, further up the pitch, which brings me to the question of... Um, and you've already mentioned him, is that John Walk was very much the yeah. epitome of the goal-scoring midfielder, kind of a bit like Terry McDermott. He'd arrive late into the box and he'd score a lot of goals with headers from crosses yeah. that were pulled back by the likes of George Burley, I suppose, and people like that. Um, and yet, how did how did Ipswich fit these these two pretty much central, pretty much attacking midfielders into what was then, a, you know, an orthodox 4-4-2 because everybody played 4-4-2. Well, this is the thing. I, I, I've i always thought of it as a 4-3-3. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's in, the answer. In, in the order that I named it. Um, yeah. I mean, definitely definitely a flat back four Yeah. Um, with, with Butcher and Osman, Mills and Burley and sometimes, um, sometimes... Um, BT, yeah. uh, who was you know injury riddled, and we, yeah. I'm sure you discussed him elsewhere. I know, yeah. Um, but so he was probably coming to, even though he was still in his twenties, BT at that point, he was probably coming to the end of his playing career. Yeah. Um, so definitely a flat back four. Um, yeah, Walk, Muir, and Tyson in the middle, and that, and I've, I've, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put Walk and Gates in the same bracket. Really, Walk very definitely a midfielder. Yeah. Who, as you, as you mentioned there got forward scored a lot of goals and gates for me very definitely a, a forward but not a not an out and out um you would always be just behind uh, marin and brazil in those days but i guess that's part of what made him a useful player for us was that he would he would be difficult to pick up i suppose um but i've never thought of that team as 442 i've always thought of it as 433 now uh, dear old king bob isn't here to correct me yeah um and he may have he may have picked it as a 442 but to me it's it's sort of set up and played like a four three three, and yet I would doubt whether you'd find any contemporary sources claiming it as a four three three because they just didn't exist in English football in the eighties. It was it was four four two, you know, hence the title of the the magazine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but the the best sides, and particularly those with managers um, who are willing to embrace innovation and certainly uh, Sir Bobby, uh, for all of his mm. sort of old school values, was a was a manager mm. who was always keen uh, to look at different ways of, of doing um, the same things, i.e. breaking down a, a defence, then, uh, you know, I think... I think that's a, a fair point, which which brings me on to my ne- next one. Really, uh, you've already mentioned that he only got two caps, and yeah. maybe there's a whole Ness and Dormer of uh, an eleven who should have got more caps because boy, well, you can oh, boy, Kevin, you can have, I got you a can few. Add Kevin Beatty well, as well. Yeah, there, there may be more <laughs> reason for Kevin Beatty as as you've said. He he was an absolutely outstanding uh, player um, whose injury record uh, stopped him uh, from. Uh, realizing his his potential, I mean, he he would have played a hundred games for England, wouldn't he, at centre back? There's no question. You'd have thought, that. yeah. It was it was nine. Should have been a hundred and nine. Yeah, yeah. But wh- why why was it that uh, you think Gates only got those two caps? Because again, from the outside looking in, Ipswich were not ignored by the media the way 
you know some people say of provincial sides and and you know not mm. getting the credit they were they were something of media darlings uh, as you say for a variety of reasons he had england center forward in paul mariner i saw him score a goal at wembley uh, that qualified england for the 1982 uh, yeah. world cup and then they had other big personalities in there uh, alan brazil was always a big personality and is a big personality even today in more <laughs> senses than one he's a, he's a big guy all, all around <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they were the, the the two dutch lads and yeah. and uh, the boy Butcher, I always have to yeah. say that in a Scottish accent because the boy Butcher uh, at the at the back there, um, and yet uh, Gates is was not really recognised for England, and as as I think we both agree now is is probably a name that doesn't come up too often when you're looking at um, some of the great players of the uh, early eighties. So why do you think that's so? I, don't, I really don't know. I really don't. I mean, it, it, maybe it is he's just one of these. To underdog characters. Um, the thing is, he had a, he is a big personality, so it was not like he would go unnoticed. Yeah, colourful. I think is the uh, yeah. adjective, isn't it? Uh, oh, exactly. No, I saw I saw an interview with him a few years back. He uh, one of the things he does now is keep pigeons, and he got yeah. one of them out of the pigeon loft and held it to camera and said, "Look, it's Paul Cooper," <laughs> oh. uh, which I enjoyed. Um, so it's it's not like he was a sort of shrinking violet or. Uh, or even like a Paul Scholes who just went about his business and let the football do the talking, if you like. Yeah. He was very different from that. Um, I, I really don't know. And you'd have to ask the, you'd have to ask um, Ron Greenwood and the likes um, why he didn't get more caps for England. Um, but, you know, when you've got players like Kevin Keegan knocking about who can fulfil a similar-ish role, I suppose, then then maybe you don't get as much of a look in as, as you might otherwise. Um but you know that the team I mentioned at the at the top of the, of the interview, um, all ten of those outfield players were internationals, yeah, uh, including him. But only only a couple. Paul Cooper never played for England, um, weirdly enough, or not weirdly enough, I suppose. But um, you know, so it was it was as you say a, a fairly celebrated uh, team. Um, yeah, uh, maybe, and maybe if the England team, and we mentioned four four two, maybe the England team was set up around a four four two, and maybe he didn't fit into that as he would, into what I'm uh, clinging firmly onto my theory that Ipswich did play a four three three, and so England managers, or Ron Greenwood specifically, couldn't see where to fit him in. Perhaps that's it. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's just that the. The face didn't fit, um, and I don't mean that in well, a kind way. <laughs> of course, <laughs> um, he also has the most spectacular middle name, I think, uh, oh, and, yeah. and the least likely from from the the, the picture he presents as uh, on a Panini sticker book or something like that. So, <laughs> are you going to give it to us? Yeah, uh, Eric Lazenby Gate. <laughs> Um, I don't know the story behind it, but I, I'm, I'm sort of happy not to know it because, uh, as you say, it's 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 uh, it's, it's wholly um, unfitting in many ways uh, for such a salt of the earth character yeah. to be so exotically named. Yeah. Um, although while, while we're on names, I should probably just um, just tell you and the listeners that um, when he first arrived uh, at Ipswich as a 15-year-old, um, firstly, uh, King Bobby Robson put him up in his own house. Yeah. Um, rather than see him in a hostel, which I thought was lovely. Both Durham men, of course. Oh, yes, um, of course. And, and, then, um, and then Bobby would uh, apparently routinely refer to him as Eric Sykes. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm, I'm not one for, for sort of um, contributing to these uh, myths and rumours that Bobby Robson was a bit of a doddery old 
bloke who got everyone's names wrong. But, yeah, um, I do. I do quite like that. And yeah, it's, that's, it's always with the greatest affection. That's excellent. And of course, we we all know uh, Lazenby as the uh, worst Bond, but in the best Bond <laughs> movie, as they always say. Well, you, you've I'll mentioned take your word for that. <laughs> you've mentioned County Durham there, and, and at thirty, he goes off to Sunderland, where mm. again he's a, a kind of cult figure around uh, Sunderland, and then subsequently. Um, he uh, becomes a, a kind of big personality on on local uh, radio uh, in the early two thousands. But um, I, I, I'm I'm very much glad that we've been able to to look at Eric Gates here because we we have something that we occasionally bring out at uh, Ness and Dorma, which is our our underrated Hall of Fame. Oh, I like it. And, um, you know, I'm very much proposing here, Eric Gates, to go into our underrated Hall of Fame. And so I'm, I'm looking for some confirmation from yourself, Paul. Well, seconded, of course. Yeah, yeah. So there is Eric Gates going into our underrated uh, Hall of Fame at, at Ness and Dorma. I'm absolutely delighted that we've uh, been able to draw on the knowledge and the enthusiasm and the joy of Paul Howarth in uh, in pulling that together. And um, we'll leave you on that uh, on that note of congratulations to one of England's uh, somewhat forgotten uh, footballers. So thank Get you. Get in Paul. there, Gatesy. Get in there. <laughs> thank you, Eric Gates. <laughs> Cheers. So, with thanks to uh, Paul for that uh, discussion of our player of the pod, Eric Gates, we move to the 93-94 final day. Now, this was the first of the final days of the season, the super-duper Sundays, if you will, where everyone kicks off at the same time for their 42nd game in this instance. Uh, Of course, these days it's the 38th. Uh, game. I mean, it seems incredible to think back that that there was ever any other way of doing this. But of course, there there, there was. I, I remember when Leeds won the last of the old first divisions, they were not playing that day. And I think they were all lined up in a sofa in David Batty's house, like they were five star or something. And they were watching... Whatever match was the decider on the television, and Eric Cantona was sort of perched on the end with a with a, a very uh, silly centre part. I, I seem to recall, and David Batty saying, "Well, it's a bonus, ain't it?" Um, because they weren't actually playing uh, all together on the last day of the season. Of course, that was winning a champion uh, a, a title, and that's relatively small beer compared to avoiding the drop, which is something that we're going to obviously examine in more detail. But gentlemen, uh, any memories or thoughts on whether this is a a good innovation and sort of what happened before and some of the craziness that that did go on, some of which went on at Goodison Park, I recall, in the 80s. But um, any thoughts? Uh, uh, Sorry, sorry. Go on, mate. Um, well, it, yeah, it seems amazing that we got this far through league football without some kind You would think there would be some kind of blow-up, you know, some kind of scandal where, I don't know, a, a, a team is is waiting to go down or, or, you know, or you, you know, you get a team playing a weakened team or some, something that would cause some kind of issue where they, they would just insist on everything at, Ending on the last day. I mean, I, I've seen clips before. I think it's in the seventies. Scott will know better than me. But there's, uh, I mean, it's at the other end. But when 
Liverpool won one of their titles. I think QPR were all watching it on TV. I think I think their season had finished, and um, they had to hold. Yeah, I think their season had, had finished quite a quite a long time before for um, for various mm. reasons. Was it was it because UEFA uh, Liverpool were in the UEFA Cup final that year, and that had got um, that had got sort of held back for some reason or another. Mm. Um, there's also the, the the end of the the 1972 season um, when Derby won. I think they were. I think Brian Clough was on holiday in Tresco, <laughs> and um, oh, I, I can't can't quite remember where he where he was. But like both Leeds and Liverpool could have could have won the um, mm. won the title by winning their final game. On I think the Monday after the scheduled end of the season, but obviously because of fixture pileups, blah blah blah, um, and neither could win. Um, Liverpool can win at Highbury, um, if memory serves, and I think Leeds, Leeds can beat Wolves, and then sort of Derby mm. just won it by default. <laughs> um, and I don't, and I don't know whether it's it's better or worse. That these things happen um, that way because you might get maybe one of these stories every ten years, um, but it, in in the old, you know, in the old non-manufactured days. Um, mm. But at least it wasn't sort of artificially artificially built the narrative. Um, but then you know, I mean, how many? I mean, what's this? Twenty odd years now since. Nearly thirty years since um we've been doing these, you know, final days, and yeah. it doesn't it doesn't that often come to the absolute crunch. No, I think it's uh, it's the way we remember Aguero uh, so clearly <laughs> that that shows that it's a relatively uh, rare occurrence. I mean, I remember being at Goodison probably late seventies, and uh, it was quite a famous incident where I think. And I'm hope I'm not libeling him, although he's long gone now. I think Jimmy Hill was involved at Coventry in in kind of artificially delaying a, a second half kickoff by extending half time due to them not being able to find a corner flag or something ridiculous like that. And I don't know whether it was Norwich or there was a, a team sort of celebrating on the pitch at Goodison when there was still five minutes to go at Highfield Road. And of course, <laughs> Coventry did that kind of Dion Dublin thing where he used to put his finger in the air, if you recall, at the staying up and, and got a late goal. I'm pretty sure that was that was what happened. And I'm sure... Uh, I'll tell you, you want to get um, Jonathan Wilson on that subject because I think it was Sunderland. Oh, yes, that year, I think it was. And he really hates Jimmy Hill. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I think... I think it's to the point where if he could exhume him <laughs> to give him a good kick, and, I think so, and and be able to you know have the have the joy of burying him again, yeah. he would he would take that. Yeah, I, I he's pretty... a nice man normally, but but, but this subject. <laughs> yeah. Well, get, get, get some off on one. Well, I, I was, and you know, Sunderland are, are often um, other fans kind of second team in lots of ways because they're fairly benign. You know, they, they, they <laughs> their only real rivals are, are, are Newcastle, and that even that's a, a kind not quite a, a real derby. So I think the Everton fans were were really okay about Sunderland staying up and them being on the pitch and all of this kind of stuff. I remember being slightly bemused myself as we we saw, you know, sort of cavorting and this kind of stuff um, 
for uh, uh, avoiding relegation because that kind of thing didn't happen at Goodison. <laughs> Little did we know what was coming up. Um, but uh, but yeah, sure enough, um, that that was I I think the case. But most of that goes now because of the the television, the the, the drama, and so on. But you know, I'm going to suggest that that amongst things that Sky have done, uh, good and bad, that, that finals day is sometimes a damp squib, in fact, often a damp squib, but it's actually a good idea. Uh, are we, are we going to accept that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, in terms of fairness, I think it, you know, it's obviously a good idea. In It goes against the grain of everything else the Premier League does. You, you know, whether over a weekend, they spread the fixtures around mm. as much as possible to get as many of them on on TV as possible. But I think, yeah, football had started to realise the, the drama and finality, I suppose. And, you, you know, a few years before you had, you know, the Liverpool-Arsenal game, the, the very last game of the season, deciding the league title. And um, so, yeah, it had to happen. And it is, it's the only, it's the only um, you know, day of the year where, where all the fixtures kick off at the exact same time. So, uh you know, through the rest of the year, they just, you know they, they spread all over a weekend and things. But um, yeah, the, I think there was one year, one of the duller Premier League seasons, where all that was on the last day was um, like a Europa League place or something like that. Relegation had been done, the Champions League places had been sorted, the title had been won, and um, you know there was nothing for uh, like Richard Keyes and Andy Gray to get excited about, <laughs> um, except two sides but, trying to avoid the Europa League spot. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, I suppose it it's it it's good that I, I mean, in, for you know from a fairness perspective, I suppose that it happens. And I think I think this one because it's I mean we we make the point all the time on here about um, you know the era we're talking about being pre-internet. It is that great you know transistor radio experience, that little murmur through the crowd when mm. something's happened somewhere else, and that's spreading round like you know spreading through the crowd like wildfire. I mean the. I love those moments about those moments aren't manufactured, you know, they're kind of, uh, you know, they're genuine, aren't they? And, uh, yeah, they, they just really add to the drama of the day, I think. Well, I mean, its power is, is clear because, you know, as we've already mentioned, you know, the fixture pile often caused by sort of fourth replays in the FA Cup third round at Wickham Wanderers or something uh, that, that sort of backs up the fixtures through the spring. But also, or, um, also or, bra- or breaking into stadiums and getting uh, getting games abandoned. <laughs> well, <there> is, <laughs> this is the modern way. <laughs> there is that. And the um, and the kind of frozen pitch or, or waterlogged uh, pitches that um, invariably matches would start on, but sometimes they'd be they'd be called off um, during the uh, the ninety minutes, it, I mean, you mentioned that the game that, that's having to be rescheduled, the Manchester United Liverpool game. Nobody for a second has suggested that it could be played after the final day of the no. season because that is now sacrosanct. That's sort of uh, in stone now, and you know that it, it cannot be touched, even if there's uh, there's nothing of substance uh, depending on it. If that match will be played before the final round of fixtures in the last uh, last day of the season. But I'm gonna I'm gonna throw something at you, um, Scott, because they always say mm. that the playoff for the uh, for the championship uh, is the biggest 
money match in football, and they all say you know a place in the Premier League is worth eighty million pounds and so on. And as anybody knows, there's two sides to a balance sheet because you you may get that money in, but the money out in terms of of uh, bringing in new players and paying wages means that that the match can be as uh, the championship match and promotion for a side uh, sometimes ill-prepared for that can be a, a, a real problem even if like Sheffield United they come up and have a good season the second season can often see them being found out so I think the biggest money match in football is actually this one because uh, of, of the final day of the uh, of the Premier League season because if you drop out there's parachute payments, but there's no guarantee of coming back. And indeed, some sides, and we'll finish off on this point, some sides drop out and we don't really see them again in the Premier League. So uh, it is a huge affair, relegation, even today. But back then, it was even more enormous. Am I am I overplaying that hand, Scott? No, I think that's absolutely right i mean it's just it's going to be typical of the you know the powers that be are always going to big up the big money game or the game with the most money riding on it as the you know the promotion playoff because that's the feel good story yeah. and that's the one where the sort of um you know the financial precipice <laughs> doesn't have any light thrown at it um so yeah, when Oldham go down, um, never to return in you know in our lifetime by the looks of it, um, that was a that was a huge huge thing, um, and you know it, it it was a huge thing. It wasn't quite the same th- in the way that like you know Swindon go down as well, um, but the year before when they were coming up, it was oh my god, this is. You know the making of a club who haven't been in the haven't been in the top flight, and um, yeah, I think it's just that positive. It's the positive spin is always gonna it's always gonna win out, especially when you've got people like Richard Keys uh, telling telling the story. He's not, he's not going to bother um, upsetting the apple cart any other way. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's get into the 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 meat of the day and we're, we're gonna try and do a, a little bit of a kind of match of the day on this um i just wonder if match of the day had that innovation back then uh i i was already six or seven pints into the evening by the time match of the day came on uh on this particular day for reasons that will become obvious but um i i seem to remember that that it it's a more recent matter where they go round the grounds you know and they'll fade out after a goal at Stamford Bridge, they'll fade out and they'll say, and over at Upton Park, and it goes to the Upton Park game. Am I getting that wrong? Has that always been there? Because I, I think that's more of a kind of year 2000 type innovation. No, I think it, I think it was there for this. Was it? Memory. Right. Yeah, and there was, there was also, the, there's a kind of heartbreaking um, shot on match, where match of the day, they go live inside um, the Sheffield United dressing room. Ooh, yes. Um, as they've just walked back in as well, um, and they and they're starting to find out what the other results are. It's um, yes, yeah, an quite enthralling bit of, bit of television to watch. There's a whole um, 
Amazon Prime documentary waiting there <laughs> these days. Uh, we hadn't got the uh, traditional kind of meme of the weeping Geordie uh, on the terraces <laughs> or in the in the in the chairs. Does anybody? I, I I ought to say. I mean, we're all football fans. I mean, we've all, to a lesser or greater extent, sort of dedicated much of our lives to it. And um, as I'm about to explain, you know, my my nerves have never been so shredded as they they were on this day. But mm. I can't help the schadenfreude of raising a smile when the camera picks out the, the fan <laughs> in the scarf, weeping. Is it, is it just me, or are you two going to own up to it as well? I don't know. I'm, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound really pious about go this. Go on, go um, on. No, it's just that... Um, and it, it kind of is the sort of weeping Geordie thing, because I, I think they were kind of the first... That we really, really honed in on, and I just remember at the time thinking, "Oh, you poor bastards! Like yeah. you've you've waited, you've waited for what would it have been at the time? Fifty-seven years or something. I can't remember how long it would have been, but you've waited all this time uh, for this one moment in the sun, and it's gone, it's gone <laughs> catastrophically wrong. Um, and we're all going ah." <laughs> and I just I think there's a slight difference between the, the, the slightly serious point, which makes me sound pious about it, it um, w- would be that I think it's really funny um, to zone in on, and I say this as a Liverpool fan, to zone in on Steven Gerrard <laughs> af- after he slipped over. Yes. That's funny because he's there um, for better, you know, when he scores from 30 yards in the yeah. cup final, he can point at the name on his back. Yeah. When, when he slips over. You know, fans of other clubs are going to laugh at him. That's just part of the deal. Yeah. That's why they all earn so much money. Yeah. Some poor bugger in the, <laughs> in the um, which it probably wasn't so bad back in like 1996 when it happened. But like people become memes now, don't yeah, they? Yeah, so they do. Yeah. It's like, is it really? You know, especially when they have to pay sort of sixty quid for the the privilege of of becoming humiliated <laughs> worldwide. Oh, yeah. um, but I, I, but but like you, I do think it's funny as well. So having said all of that, I, I can't help myself. Go on, Mike. I, I'll just say the the most savage one of those I think I've ever seen was um, you remember the Brazil Germany the World Cup semi final? Oh yeah, oh, yeah twenty fourteen. Yeah, yeah. When the fifth goes in, the camera picks out a little lad. He must be about eight years old, and he's just yeah. bawling his eyes out the place. Get the fucking camera off him, for God's sake! It just felt like so unnecessarily. Obviously, he'd gone there with such hope. You know, he's got his Brazil yeah. shirt, he's got his soft drink, and he's oh, he might see his team get to the final. And all those Brazil games were played in this like really frenzied atmosphere, and for it all just to be crushed in that the space of that half an hour, and then other goals were going. At one point, I think four goals went in in six minutes. Yeah. I mean, I was la- I was laughing at this <laughs> point, but when it cut to him, oh, that's too much. Come on, get. Yeah, get the camera no, but, off him. Because also, I think that kind of proves the point. By the the best shot is just that thousand yard stare of David Lewis. Yeah, yeah. And you're just thinking that now that's amusing. You just in the middle of this, you know, probably the biggest humiliation in World Cup history. Uh, um, I, I, I'll tell you what: if there's a red button option for the World Cup final, or indeed relegation day uh, finals, that is just disappointed fans, the camera just going round and picking disappointed. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I'm paying fourteen ninety nine or whatever it is for Now TV subscription to get the red button service on disappointed fans. 
it would be absolutely fantastic. There has to be something in between kind of Eden Hazard sort of Instagramming with his mates after Real Madrid uh, lose to Chelsea and uh, the, the weeping fan. There's got to be a, a middle ground between too much disappointment and too little disappointment. But um, yes, it has become a, a meme. And yes, it can that's, be um, cruel. That's Arsenal fan TV, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think so. Robbie's already cornered the market. Yeah. Excellent. Well, um, I was I was potentially a, a weeping fan um, on that on that day because I was I was pitching up to to Goodison, and I'll talk a little more about what Goodison was like later on. But the the first <coughs> excuse me the first action of the day was actually at Goodison um, because we'd we'd barely sort of worked out who was going to fall out of the trees in Stanley Park because the park end was open and there were fans sitting in all the uh, trees overlooking the the match. Uh, When uh, Dean Holdsworth got himself a a penalty and Everton went one down uh, after four minutes, then uh, there was a goal uh, West Ham... uh, scored against Southampton. Uh, Hope sprung after 14 minutes when Oldham scored at Norwich. Uh, We'll look at Oldham in just a moment. And then Everton went 2-0 down and we were proper scared. But I'll come back to (laughs) Everton. But let's just look at Oldham because in many ways Oldham were the, the ones who were in the most uh, trouble. Let's just pick out where Oldham were and what was going down with Oldham. Uh, where have I got it here? Um, so, um, at the turn of the year, uh, Oldham were in 20th on 19 points. Uh, so they were in the drop zone. They were one point away from the drop zone. So it was quite a bit of movement uh in the second part of the season, but not so much for Oldham, because at the start of the day, they were only one place below that. They were in 21st on 39 points, uh, three points and three goals short of safety. So they had to beat Norwich and hope to overturn a goal difference of minus three if it's which lost, or minus nine if Southampton or Sheffield United lost. I'll try not to get too much into goal difference because otherwise <laughs> the inevitable cliche about getting the abacuses out. It's the only time you ever hear the word abacus, by the way, these days is on the final day of the uh, season. Or sometimes... Um, in a World Cup qualification group if there's been a lot of draws. Uh, but the abacuses would have been out uh, were that the case. Um, so Oldham take the lead, and the likes of Lee Calvert, our great leader here at Ness and Dormer, their heart springs, but unfortunately it's not to last. And Oldham, eventually, uh, they at the end of this uh, fraught day for everyone, they draw 1-1 with Norwich and they go down in 21st place, just one above Swindon Town, who were well and truly shot before the start of the uh, day. So Oldham never really got their noses into the into the match, despite being 1-0 up. They, they were always likely to go down and did go down. It was their fourth game in a week, um, it was all a bit too much for Oldham. Um, but, Scott, you've got a particular take on, on this Oldham match, I think. 
or Oldham team, um, I should say. Yeah, I mean, I just think this is a really great example of, uh, you know, an underdog just suddenly running out of puff at the at exactly the wrong time. Um, you know, like the cartoon character, Wiley Coyote, oh, of course. going over, mm. over the side of the cliff in a few paces before they realise there's no floor beneath them. Um, because they, they'd escaped the year before, um, and it was an astonishing escape. I mean, they were as good yeah. as down, but they won their last three games. They, they beat Aston Villa, who had been chasing United for the title. Um, the one at, I mean, that was at Aston Villa. Um, they beat Liverpool, and then they then they beat Southampton in the last game, four three, just like an astonishing goal fest. And Crystal Palace went down instead, and you're sort of thinking, okay, well, you know, another season in the top flight. But they they always struggled, and you were thinking, well, this is. A, but they had a great cup run, got to the semi final. We were like a minute or two, like Michael know more about this, but they were a minute or two away from from the um, from the final, and then Mark Hughes scored that absurd volley, <laughs> just just out of nowhere. I mean, United didn't look as though they were going to equalise at all. They could have been playing all all afternoon, but they did equalise. One replay, and I don't think Oldham won a game after that. It was just they were just kaput, um, and you sort of knew then that the you know. It, the jig was up for them. And even though they, you know, even when they sort of, there was this little burst of hope on the final day, there was something always just nagging away at the back thinking, no, you're, you're probably, probably down, aren't you? I mean, that the, the Mark Hughes goal absolutely killed them. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of, that's kind of how it, how it felt at the time. Um, say as, an Everton fan, we'd kind of almost written off Oldham because it, it had been a long time coming, as you say, there'd been the escape the year before. And then there was, I mean, can you imagine how Twitter would explode with, you know, both its uh, Oldham fans on Twitter complaining about the uh, four matches in a, in a, in a week. Um, in these days, pre the kind of manufactured and sometimes real outrage that you get on uh, Twitter and social media in general, uh, everybody just sort of you know sat in pubs and either said if it was your own team, sort of complained loudly, and if it wasn't your own team, so either giggled behind your hand or actually said it's a little bit unfair, isn't it, to be doing that? And you'd say, yeah, yeah I suppose it is. Anyway, is it a lager or are you up? <laughs> and so on. Um, <laughs> but but Mike uh, Oldham. Yeah, I mean, just just to reinforce Scott's point, really. I mean, the escape the year before was just incredible. I mean, they made it, they were eight points behind, you know, with a week to go, and they they made that up. It was um, it's one of the most amazing escapes you'll ever see, really. But you can't keep walking to the abyss and taking in the grand panoramic view, um, <laughs> you know, season after season. You are going to go eventually, and actually, there's a team. Um, who are only just out of this kind of uh, fight on goal difference. Like we should say there are there were five teams involved who could go mm. down on this uh, final day. So Oldham, Everton, Ipswich, Sheffield United and Southampton. So Man City, um, often flirting with relegation around then, they were out of it on goal difference, but would throw themselves helplessly into uh, relegation's arms a couple of uh, 
a couple of seasons later. But um, yeah, that that Hughes goal, it had an, it had an effect in both directions really because it, it steadied United just as they were starting to um, to wobble a bit on the run into what would have, you know eventually be their first double, and it just it did just seem to take the wind right out of Oldham, um, and. Yes, I think we said before on here that that effectively felt like the point at which, um, you know, they weren't relegated at that point, but the, uh, you know, the dramatic, um, you know, violins and music um, certainly um, stirred into life around then, I think. Um, I'd just like to do a quick bit on Swindon. If that's oh, right. yeah, 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 go ahead. Um, so they, they were already down at this point. They'd already gone, so... Swindon, they're actually, they're the last team to concede 100 goals in the... Um, the Premier League, like the, the the last team to ship three figures, so uh, they they just had this really kind of slapstick season in the Premier League. Um, so Glenn Hoddle brought them up. They won the playoff final um, in '93, I think, and then he left to manage Chelsea. Uh, John Gorman took over, but I mean they were miles out of their depth. They shipped seven to Newcastle, uh, six to Everton. Yeah. They can they conceded five goals four times. Um, and at the back, you know, they had like Nicky Summerby, who'd been a good under-21 player, Paul Bowden, who was a Welsh international, but also like people like Terry Fennick and Brian Kilcline, you know, 80s defenders right at the end of their uh, careers. But there was there was a really admirable gallows humour uh, in the Swindon fans, I think, about how bad they were. So when, when they went to Goodison in, I think it was in January, they lost 6-2 and the Everton fans were singing at them, going down, going down, going down, to which the Swindon away throng replied, so are we, so are we, so are we. <laughs> That's very good. Uh, and, um, but yeah, go, going into, the, so their final game uh, was Leeds United at home and they conceded 95 goals at this point. So, all right, you're playing at home. All you have to do to avoid the ignominy of, of shipping a round ton of goals was not to lose 5-0 at home. And that's, that's exactly what they did <laughs> um, to concede the round ton. So, uh, yeah, I'm not sure they'll look back on it very fondly. But yeah, their, their, one, uh, their one season in the Premier League was um, you know, certainly very eventful. Yeah, it's, it's worth noting as, as, well, a couple of points that come up uh, there for me is that we we didn't really talk about Manchester City because their goal difference was such that you know you'd need yeah. a a kind of Argentina six Peru nil to send them down and that never happens does it and uh, the 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 other thing was that City did stay up only to go down and then come back up again um, and you know thank God they did go down because otherwise every single bloody Manchester City supporter for the last week on the radio phone-ins would not be explaining that they were there at the playoff against Gillingham when uh, when they won in order <laughs> mm. to go back into the Premier League. Because uh, there must have been the traditional uh, 250,000 people at Wembley who were at that, that match if this week's uh, phone-ins. <laughs> if you're listening to this later, by the way, uh, we're recording it a couple of days after Manchester City uh, eviscerated uh, a, a truly pathetic Paris Saint-Germain side. So that's why we're, we're talking like this. Um, but it's worth noting that Oldham went down despite... The uh, near escape of the or the escape of the previous season and the fixture pileups and everything else, they went down with forty points in twenty first place. Now forty points is plenty to stay up these days, but of course it was a forty two match season. But if you you're kind of only two points behind number of matches played these days. Chances are, you know, thirty six points in thirty eight games. Chances are you you. 
you usually stay up, I would guess. Or if you do go down, you certainly don't go down as the next bottom side. But that is a function of the fact that the uh, points were shared out uh, on a much broader base in those days because there wasn't the kind of difference between the Champions League sides and mm. the the rest of the um, Premier League in those early days of the of the Premier League. So um, you, you had to... You could work hard, win matches, and still go down uh, right up until probably about ten years ago. Uh, where now, as as Newcastle are showing, I think you can you can stay up um, being pretty abysmal for sort of at least half the matches in which you play, and not being much better than that in some of the others as as well. You couldn't do that in in back in the uh, these days. You could either sink hilariously like sort of Benny Hill being chased uh, out of the school playground uh, the way uh, Swindon Town did did. or um, you could really do quite well uh, battle the elements sometimes literally in the winter and still go down the way Oldham did Uh, so that was was Oldham Uh, let's go back uh, to the next sort of point of interest on the on the uh, chronology of the uh, matches Um, so we've we've seen off Oldham, and uh, <laughs> Everton get their toehold in the game, and perhaps this is the point at which um, I can talk a little, and, and you guys can talk a little about what was probably the most dramatic uh, game, because Anders Limpar, uh, my father always described as a big match player, and he was a big match player at Limpar. Sometimes he could be less than interested in what was going on. But sometimes he could be absolutely outstanding. And having played uh, a part by giving away the penalty with a hilarious uh, handball that um, VAR wouldn't even bother to look at these days because it was so obvious, um, he ran up the other end and then he stopped because that was his thing. He used to run very quickly and then stop very quickly. Um, Meanwhile, a a defender would be going past. It wasn't quite the Cruyff turn, but it had something of the Cruyff turn's impact on a defender because they would sort of run past and then realise that Limpar was no longer running and stop. Well, that kind of thing did lead to a lot of cheap fouls because sort of ankles would be tapped. Now, it remains moot, and I'm suggesting a little bit like Jeff Hurst's goal in the 66 World Cup final. We can't quite see on the vision, but Anders Limpar is touched, shall we say, by, I think, Peter Fear. He goes down, and a penalty is given. Oh, he's given the penalty. There wasn't too much contact from Peter Fear, but Limpar, the type of player to make the most of it, I must say that does not look a very justifiable decision. What what's the view from outside Goodison on that on that penalty because it's one of of two incidents that gets talked about in this game. Well, could I just say first Go on. It's, <clears throat> it's obvious that Hurst shot didn't cross the line. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this much we know. This much we yes. know. Um I thought it was fair enough. It did it, it it never seemed maybe i've just been like listening and reading in all the wrong places but um and i've never sort of known that to be a particularly contentious bit in the way that the as we'll get to yeah. the talk of the, you know the winner um hmm. has sort of like you know become embedded in the 
in the narrative. Um, no, I mean, the only thing to say about it was it's one of those situations that if Everton, like, don't score, don't get back into it, there's a difference between being 2-0 down for four minutes and 2-0 down for 24 or 44 oh. minutes because then you're thinking, well, this, this goal's never coming. But they were back in it quickly. Um, and, yeah, without that, um, you do wonder whether it would have got even worse for them. Well, it was indicative of the... Um of the reign of Mike Walker, that nobody seemed to be quite sure who was going to take the penalty. And I think Big Nev ambles forward and says, look, I'll do it. But it falls <laughs> to it falls to tooting boy, Graham Stewart, who I think had scored one goal uh, in the rest of the season. And he picks the ball up, he puts it on the spot. He's taken one penalty in his life beforehand. And under the most unbearable tension because it really was very strange atmosphere at Goodison with the park end uh, being rebuilt and this strange noise these murmurs going round the ground as Mike you've already indicated people with radios to their ears but this, the, the only way I can describe the noise, it was like a kind of shared anxiety, nobody wanted to speak, it was like there were sort of 32,000 or whatever the capacity was that day because, say, the park end was being rebuilt. Um, it was like sort of 32,000 expectant fathers in that cliche of walking around in the corridor outside the uh, maternity ward because <laughs> you felt like you couldn't do anything because you were you were a fan. You couldn't really cheer or shout. You couldn't get on the players' backs. You couldn't. There was really nowhere to go as a fan. So that made it even worse because you were kind of holding in this anxiety without any way of release. And I think that when Graham Stewart put that ball down, we were going to get this enormous release that was either going to be the roar of a goal or the groan that essentially was going to do what Mark Hughes did to Oldham and, mm. and send us down. And Graham Stewart steps up and he puts it away. A pressure penalty if ever there was one. And Stewart is equal to the task. Everton won Wimbledon 2. I mean, Mike, as an outsider looking in, um, Cagones of Steel for that or, or not? Yeah, I mean, well, because the, the terror of, the, of relegation, I think, um, you, can, you can really feel it in the Everton game. Um, I think more so than any of the, the others. I mean... Going down once once the Premier League had been formed, basically um, that creates like a massive disparity in, in wages in terms of like teams who are in the Premier League and teams who are in the division below. So, you know, if you if you do go down, if you do drop out of it, it necessitates a fire sale, doesn't it? Because you simply can't sustain um, Premier League club wages. You know, in the um, in the Championship, and because clubs are run almost universally by idiots it seems that you know they mortgage their futures on a certain level of achievement in the Premier League so if they go it's a huge thing I think the the enormity of Everton going down I just think is massive I mean you, it's because they're they're one of the original big five I mean if you think like you know United and Tottenham went down in the 70s but didn't have to asset strip because you know fo football was different and they could retain all their best players and then you know and come straight back up but if 
yeah, if Everton had gone down at this point, and this this is seven years after they'd won the league as well, and I, what I what I like about the um, penalty is that in the background. <coughs> you can see Goodison Park being redeveloped. Yeah. So it's like you can see the Premier League is being changed um, and about to become something different. But are, but are Everton going to be around for it? Um, so that's that feels quite symbolic in the background, that he's, he's taken the kick against a building site, um, <laughs> basically. And, and he's, he's he's trying to save, you know, um, Ever- Everton's immediate future. I mean, you know, they, if they had gone down, say, they may, they may have bounced... Um, Bounce straight, uh, straight back up, um, just in time for that second TV deal in '96, and you know the Bosman rule. And I think, um, you know, we'll never know. But I think the pressure on the Everton players in this game just must have been horrendous. So to going two 0 down is bad enough, but then yeah, having that moment because you've you've got a lot of time to think about a penalty, haven't you? So you, you've got time to think about the enormity of what <laughs> of what it means. Um, so, but I, I wouldn't have wanted to take it certainly. No. But uh, yeah, hats off to Graham Stewart for uh, well, you know, so slotting the, um, it in seemingly very calmly as well. You know, sending the keeper the wrong way. And sorry, Scott. No, no, no. Also, the um, the enormity of Everton. I mean, Forrest had gone down the the year before, hmm. or maybe the year before that. I can't quite remember the chronology. Um, and that was big because you know they won two European Cups relatively recently and were yeah. winning League Cups and things. Um, and like you said, United and um, Spurs in the 70s. But, I mean, this... I'd, I don't think there's been, certainly in my lifetime, there's been a team that's been threatened with relegation that it, this feels like it would just change the entire fabric of everything because Everton... <laughs> you know, might not be the most successful club in the country, but they're they're the ones that are always in the first division or the Premier League. It, 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 like four seasons, they've not been in in the top flight mm. in the history of all football. Four seasons, like no one else comes anywhere close to that. And you know, like Aston Villa had gone down a few years previously. Um, when Billy McNeil was taking everyone down yeah. in the same season, <laughs> yes. um, but he, and, you know, they they'd won the league six years previously, the European Cup five years previously. But even then, it wasn't quite the same because, like, Villa had been in the third division in the late sixties, early seventies. It, it's difficult to, um. Yeah, it's just I, the, the whole the size of Everton is like I, mm. I, I can't think of another team since. I mean, people might say Leeds when they went down, but Leeds were nothing in the forties and fifties or whatever. You know, they're a, a, a vaguely recent phenomenon. This is like the fabric of English football, right yeah. there, and it was it was on the precipice, and that that's. That was quite sort of psychedelic at the time. I remember thinking that, well, this is weird. Yeah, and quite exciting for a non-Everton yeah. fan. <laughs> well, it's it's well, I must say, it's interesting you say that because much of that resonates with me. I, I, I'll 
I'll gloss some of it as well because one of the things that was weird about it is that it was Wimbledon who were going to send us down. You know, Wimbledon were were Dicky Guy making those saves and when you were a non-league side and so on. And you you look at it and thinking, you know, you can kind of understand if it was a, a Newcastle say or an Aston Villa, but were Wimbledon going to send us down? And there was a banner there. I think on the wall at the park end, which I remember seeing quite clearly. I was in the Gladys Street at the other end, but we could see it. And it just said something like 41 years, pride, please. And it was, I think there's a lot in that because I don't think we were thinking that much about the money. Um, I think we were thinking about pride. Now, there's a particular element of that pride, which was that we'd had those glory years in 84, 85, 86, 87, and that's covered in other Ness and Dormers, and regular listeners will know that I have mentioned it once or twice. <laughs> uh, but mm. but it was sandwiching that kind of on either side is is Liverpool's uh, successes that, that never went away. I mean, we nosed ahead of them in 85, and we nosed ahead in 87, but, you know, Liverpool beat us in 86 to the title. And um, but we had, we always had, even in the days when, when you know, as I remember a joke going around school when I was at school in 77, I think 78, when a joke was that Everton finished fourth in the two-horse race when Liverpool won uh, a title because Everton had faded so badly at the end of the season. But we always had that that we were a first division team, that we were a club. And I remember thinking there because time passes very strange speeds um on days like this i suppose i've never had a wedding day but i suppose a wedding day might be a bit like this as well there were times when time seemed to be going very quickly and times when it went very slow and in the times it was going very slow i was thinking you know we're not going to be on match of the day and we're not going to be able to to see everton play because i live in london and i mainly watch on telly and there wasn't this kind of saturation coverage of football that we've become used to. And it, it, it felt like someone was sort of carving some of your life away here. Hmm. That, you know, Dean Holdsworth and poor old Gary Ablett given away the own goal had somehow were about to to slice part of my life away and I hadn't done anything to deserve it. Um, but it really did feel like that. And I think it was encapsulated in that, that flag that said, Pride, please, because we didn't know the financial deals that were to come. And we'll look at the end at what happened to to these clubs. Um, but I always say about that game that that we were saved from becoming a kind of Sheffield Wednesday, uh, having a history, having a stadium, but being a side that were not in the public eye, that were playing at a lower level of football and seemed deemed, even though Sheffield Wednesday did have some time in the Premier League and played FA Cup finals and so on, but but deemed to be a, a side of lesser standing, less likely to be on television, less likely to be in the public eye, less likely to be um, the subject of pub conversation and so on. And I'll say one, one other thing before this, because it, it's only really in thinking about this episode over the last couple of weeks that I've realised something else, which is that Everton have three of the proposed European Super League uh, clubs within 45 minutes drive. 
you know, the distance from Everton's ground to Old Trafford is, I think, about the same distance of one end of the Northern Line to the other end of the Northern Line. Certainly, uh, it's less than the, the the distance that's covered by the extremities of the the London Underground. So we're that close to Manchester United, Manchester City, and Liverpool, and there'd be no guarantee that Everton would have survived that with that kind of density of clubs that were highly marketable, that were successful, that were what the Premier League were, were looking for. And Everton could might not just have sunk the way a kind of Sheffield Wednesday uh, have sunk and then recovered and then sunk again. Uh, Everton may have gone the whole way. We may have just disappeared. Because who was going to put money into Everton with that kind of competition on the doorstep? Mm-hmm. It was that much... But I'll I'll just whiz us forward because we'll we'll cover the rest of that game a little more quickly because we have covered it in depth. Well, go, can I just say, go on. Gary, on the on the point you were making there, I think it's that's a super important one, and that really is a big sliding doors moment yeah. because if you look at the history of English football, so Arsenal became the biggest club. Arsenal became a properly huge club in the thirties when like tabloid journalism. It's sort of in the form of the papers like The Express and things like that. And, and football gossip became a thing. And they were the biggest club. or They were the most successful club at yeah. the time. Therefore, they became the biggest when that happened. Manchester United became uh, big when you know they coincided with uh, the launch of ITV and the European Cup coverage and the fact that they were the first, you know, they happened to be in the right place for television. And, and, and so... They became beloved across the country. And then you had, you know, Liverpool and Spurs and, you know, and Everton as well in the 60s when, like, match of the day was a thing. And that was even bigger. So, and then Chelsea and Manchester City when the sort of oligarch era, you know, they just happened to be positioned in just the right position where they could be taken over and blah, blah, blah. So being visible and being in the right place at the right time is is so important. And clubs like Leeds and Sheffield Wednesday and Sunderland and Newcastle have all fallen foul of that through no fault of their own. They've just they haven't been, you know, they weren't in top gear when certain external forces suddenly changed and were applied to the to the sport. And that, I, I think you're right that Everton could have gone a sour way out in a way that maybe even Leeds, who were what 15 years out of the the top flight, yeah. that even Leeds weren't just because of that perfect timing or imperfect timing at the start of the Premier League. Well, listeners, this is why you tune into Ness and Dorma, the historical materialist analysis of Everton's 1993-94 escape. Fantastic it's, stuff, um... Scott. You're exactly right. Mike. Yeah, if I could just make a quick point on that, it's actually one of one of the great ironies of it. If Everton had gone down, would have been that, yeah, they were one of the traditional uh, big five in England, and they they were like a, a driving force in getting the Premier League set up. And the Premier League was designed to av- avoid this very kind of thing, you know, that um, that that clubs of that stature wouldn't. Um, and, you know, it's not the closed shop they were proposing with the ESL, obviously, because they still have um, still had relegation, but. Um, 
you know, the idea was that this wouldn't happen, and uh, and you know they stayed up, and they're they're in the curious position now. Everton of um, you know it's been I think a quarter of a century since they last um, won a trophy, but they they are this enormous team for the, the reason Scott said earlier. You know, they're they're just a constant in English football. They're a through line in the you know in the first division almost for its and Premier League almost for its entire history. Well, one of the most ludicrous bits of football commentary I've ever heard was when. Um, Everton played uh, United on the opening day, I think, of the 2012-13 season and beat them, I think, with a Fellaini header. And uh, when the final whistle went, the commentator said, oh, it's one of the greatest results in their history. So, <laughs> this, is, this is a club that's won nine championships yeah. you know, and <laughs> a major yeah. European trophy. But it's, it, just, it, it does go to show, actually, what, um, how the Premier League has formed or, or reformed opinions on, of clubs yeah. and what constitutes big clubs. I, 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 mean, I think that's that, that's happened throughout history. There's been a churn of some clubs are more important than the other. You know, Newcastle and Sunderland being the the really big sides in the you know the turn of the twentieth century, not so much at the turn of the twenty first. I mean, there is always that churn, but there's just there's sort of levels within levels, and I think one of the reasons why Everton's struggled this this season was kind of so shocking was that they kind of so rarely got involved in relegation scrapes. I mean, Gary, maybe once in the 70s, I'm not even sure it was that close. It never went to the last day. There were were times when, a bit like Arsenal, there were times when you found yourself in 16 and things like this, but it yeah. It never really felt like it. Of course, we had an escape, I think, two years later when Gareth Farrelly, of all people, scored a goal from the edge of the box. But we'd kind of already done the escape. This was this was the shock to the system. This was the collapse. We were the team that always gets talked about that were falling like a stone from kind of uh, January through February, March. Couldn't Got one win, I think, in 10 matches. And... You know, we we woke up on that that morning uh, to go to to Goodison, and it all got you know real as the expression has it, and <laughs> it was it 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 was like you know history is bunk, but it isn't bunk because we know that Everton are in the the first division or the Premier League. That's how it happens. But oh no, it might not be. Well, I think that like a good um, sort of corresponding example, like modern day would be if say Manchester United got involved in a relegation battle now I think people would be going up bloody hell this doesn't happen you wouldn't think that of Manchester United back in 1993-94 because they kind of toyed with going down in 1990 yeah they'd obviously been down in the 70s um you know Spurs had got relegated Arsenal had got themselves into a bit of trouble at the in the, in the mid-70s and at the start of the 80s. Um, so there are a lot of really big names that occasionally were, were down there and just Everton never were. Yeah, which is why, which is why you know, it, it took a bit of getting used to and that's why it was a shock to the system going 2-0 down. And that's why I think Graham Stewart's penalty was so important because we didn't really have the opportunity opportunity to get used to the idea that we were down I mean you're 2-0 down and you need to win how many times are you going to come back and win 3-2 it's not that often Hmm. Uh, which of course leads us to the uh, denouement but we'll come to that in a moment because even 
and in the second half, Everton begin to get a, a grip on the game. The crowd really get behind them, and there's a lot more energy. Um, I don't think it was necessarily the team talk. I think it was the the penalty, and the players just looked bigger. You know, the the shoulders were thrown back. There was a sense that we're not going to allow this to happen, and it was epitomised really with a ball breaks in midfield and it bounces and I can still see this like it happened yesterday because it's coming straight towards me and the ball is bouncing and Barry Horn who he doesn't just not score he he doesn't even shoot but somehow he lashes it and he slightly cuts across the ball so it starts off on a line that's sort of in the middle of the goal but it's heading towards me and I'm seeing it begin to arc away as that cut that you get on a long shot begins to take effect, a bit like a kind of flint off to uh, Gilchrist in the uh, 2005 Ashes. The ball begins to curve away, and you realise it's going in the top corner, what seems like minutes before it actually goes into the top corner. It's 2-2. And then the explosion of joy and release because everyone knew that at 2-2 we were going to get the third one. It was just clear as day. And yeah, I ended up in a pub in Landidno, Landudno as you'd call it if we were English, but in North Wales it's Landidno, isn't it, with the two L's and the, and the uh, U pronounced as an I. And we were, we were there because I was with my brother who lives in North Wales, and I think for some reason we, we went to the coast and Llandidno. And Barry Horn grew up in North Wales. He was from Hollywell, uh, and uh, I think he's got a degree in chemistry. He's, he's an unusual footballer in, in some ways, Barry Horn, but perhaps his most distinguishing feature was that he never scored. But he did get this goal, <laughs> and we're in a pub mm-hmm. in North Wales, and I very seldom sing... Uh, at football grounds, and I very seldom sing in the pub if it's not karaoke and the Candyman. But I think we were all singing just Barry Horn's name over and over again because it was one of those crazy nights, you know, where where you look at each other thinking, did it actually happen? You take a sip of your pint and you you think of something to say, you know, about the day, and then you realise the best thing to do is just start singing Barry Horn's name again. Hmm. <laughs> sure enough, we we did. But that leads us to to the. 81st minute and at this point Everton who had been in the relegation zone uh, for the entire day up to this point get out of the relegation zone with a goal that that Mike perhaps I'll I'll, I'll give you uh, the opportunity to describe uh, this goal because it's one that I'm sure many listeners will be familiar with Yeah I mean actually if I could just touch on the Barry Horn Horn goal quickly actually is that um... That's that just smacks of last day, doesn't it? That where just strange, weird things happen. You know, Barry Horn, who's got a handful of career goals, I think, <laughs> launched one into the top court. I remember on the last day of the previous season, um, the Oldham Southampton game, someone scored direct from a corner. It's just with everyone's nerves frayed, and you know, um, people more likely to try outlandish things to stay in the way. Yeah, you did just get, um, you know, amazing things like that. My, my, uh, abiding memory of that is Barry Horn almost getting throttled as he was <laughs> celebrating. I don't know who was kind of choking him around the neck, but I think Barry Horn realizes, well, we're still down at the moment. You know, we need another goal. But um, the celebration after that goal was uh, 
was quite something. But yeah, what what um, turned out to be uh, the winning goal in the 81st minute. So yeah, still right on the abyss, Everton. And then yeah, nine minutes um, to go. There's a one-two uh, between, between, is it with Tony Cotty, I think. Stewart. Cotty came quickly to him. Graham Stewart plays yeah. a quick one-two on the edge of the area, and then Stewart hits a shot where um, it, it just goes through Hans Sagers. Yes, yes, for Everton. They can see salvation. I think it goes. Does he dive over it? I think, or it seems to go under his body a bit. It's. It doesn't look like a shot with the pace that should go it but it just it just creeps past him, goes in and then yeah, um you know, Goodison Park erupts. But it's um compared to the Barry Horn goal, which is, you know, an absolute screamer, this is just uh well yeah, it's an extraordinary goal. Uh Scott, what's your memory of that goal? <laughs> Uh, well, that, that doesn't involve that doesn't involve the uh, Malernard friends and a and a case for defamation. <laughs> yeah, that's the bit. That's the bit I was dancing around. Was that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just remember uh, like listening to all this unfold on the uh, on the old transistor radio. Kids, ask ask your granny. Um, <laughs> And then when I actually saw it, like the, I mean, the way they described it was interesting enough. And then I saw it, and I thought, "Oh, for goodness' sake!" And but I don't know if like a little bit of this is sort of like I'm piling things onto it retrospectively, because of course Sagers got involved in you know certain legal um discussions over over this and other other incidents and in the same way that um you can look at some old liverpool matches with grobler and goal mm. and he's probably doing nothing wrong he was always very eccentric um but just because of uh because of the accusations it's human nature to look back and w- with a bit of, sus- I mean, suspicion is that the right word? Like legally, possibly, possibly not. But um, it's just you can't help but think: Did he? Did he pull his hands away from that? Now, you know, it's has it been proved? I, I can't remember whether it's been proved that he didn't or it couldn't be proved that he did. E- you know, either way. It's a, uh, it's all legit and above board, but um, but it just kind of, yeah, it's just one of those things you that you look at and you think, and and from an Everton point of view, it's a wee bit of a shame that their amazing comeback. I'm sure Everton fans couldn't care less, <laughs> it, <laughs> certainly at the time or even now, but it's just a little bit of a shame that the story's been tainted by, well, did they did they a hundred percent deserve this? Yeah, I mean, I, I I was surprised, actually, because I, I wrote about this at The Guardian as part of their My Favourite Game um, series, because it is my favourite game. You know, I've seen Everton win uh, FA Cups. I've seen win uh, lots of FA Cup semifinals. I've seen us uh, secure the champion uh, championship in 85, the QPR game, 1-2-0 at Goodison. Um, but this is my favourite game, not just 
by a little bit, but this is my favorite game by miles and miles and miles because you know <laughs> it's the stakes were so high. We knew at the time, in retrospect, as we discussed, even more so. And the the fear, the knotted tension, the everything that was that was there, the crazy sounds, Goodison sounded and looked like it had never sounded and looked before, or indeed since. Uh, it was just this extraordinary self-contained entirely different match from any other that I'd that I'd seen and there was I expected one or two comments below the line but you know it's 20 odd years ago you know who's going to do that but of course you forget football fans and there's this torrent of <laughs> of stuff that that's there which you know I would have addressed a little more clearly but I I I mentioned it in passing I think in the in the article because when you were there it looked very different to what it looks like on television. And these are the two ways that it looked very different. The first one was that all the momentum was going Everton's way. So the goal was as expected as Chelsea's second goal against Real Madrid. It was just... it. The, the match was so one way at this point. And Wimbledon's spirit... It was strong, but Wimbledon didn't have a huge amount to play for. And I think it just got to them, the atmosphere, the crowd, the players, uh, the way Everton revived, the fact that Wimbledon thought they had been the party poopers that they'd been flagged up to being and had always you know, exulted in the crazy gang, beating the culture club and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but there was just a momentum. We just knew it was coming. And when it came, it was no surprise. And the second thing about it is that it, the goal was scored at the end at which I was standing at the, at the Gladys Street end. I'm pretty sure I was standing rather than sitting as well. I don't think the seats have been put in by them. I may be wrong. Um, but it didn't look like the kind of half-hit apology for a shot that it looks like on the television. When you were there, it looked like a shot from 18 yards that was hit low and into the corner. And it's the kind of shot that you do see saved, but it's the kind of shot that goes in quite often as well, particularly when it's on that sort of near side, when the, the goalkeeper's possibly expecting the ball to go more across him and it goes in on the near side. It didn't look... Because, partly because it was expected and partly because it was a low shot into the corner. It, it, didn't, it didn't smell wrong at the ground at all. And I was surprised when you know the, the stuff came out later and people were were questioning it. But then it's a little bit like slow motion for a VAR. Once you watch it three or four times on the television, and it's absolutely the same with with Grobler with his amazing saves and his eccentricities. You can build your own narrative into it because if you watch it enough times and you watch it in slow motion and you see it from another angle, you know he, 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 he by that time he could be scoring at the park end, never mind in the Gladys Street. Um, and make of it what you will. But as you kind of say, I know because I was there, and I'm not just saying this as an, as an Everton fan, I will say that the penalty looked dubious, even from the distance I was at. It didn't look and feel like a penalty um, to me. I think we got very, very fortunate on that one, But especially by the standards of the day. But... The Graham Stewart goal looked like a shot in the corner that the keeper was late getting to getting down to, and good goal, three uh, two, Everton stay well, it up. Took, it took um, it took a it took a bounce before 
Sagers. Yeah, it bobbled. It bounces just before him. And it reminds me a bit of a goal um, Rooney scored at Anfield in about 2004, where he hit a shot from way out that bounced right before Dudek and just went through Dudek. He kind of you know, mistimed his dive well, and went over it. And it, remi- it reminded me a lot of that. But I will, I will say for Sagers, actually, I mean, when the horn goal goes past him, I mean, he does a full length dive, you know, tries to save it, tip it over the bar and can't get anywhere near it. So if if he is in some people's eyes assumed to be, um, you know, try that would, but you know what, you wouldn't throw yourself full length at that then, would you? No. I mean, you know, um, you know, it's, it's, it's easier to make that one look less hooky, I yeah. suppose, yeah. is what I'm I, trying to say. I, I wondered because at the time you, you did see a few of these bobbly goals and at the time it was the done thing for goalkeepers to sort of put a divot in the six yard box in line with the goal posts. So you'd see them, you know, in the in the kick in at the start of uh, the second half, and they'd you you don't see this on the telly. You only see if you're there, and they would sort of run their foot a little bit like a kind of batsman making their mark on mm. on middle and leg or something in cricket, and they put these aligned with the posts so that when they're coming out to make a save, they don't need to sort of look behind them to know where the goalpost is because they've got the divot there, the the six yard box, the 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 whitewash is, is marked where the uh, where the goal is. And I just wondered if it hit something like that, because you would see that. I mean, it's not quite hitting the beach ball the way Liverpool did that uh, got that time. But um, you, you, you did see that. And I just wonder if it's something like that. I, whatever whatever happened, you know, people can watch the telly and they can, uh, the, the videotape, and they can make their own minds up. But it was certainly different when you were there, because it was, it was, a, it was a culmination. Uh, Everton- I, mean, I, sus- I suspect that there's nothing... Like I'm too bored about it personally, but yeah, but it's just the point that yeah, it's a it, it's a real shame that it's now unavoidable to have to have this you know to have this conversation. Yeah. When you you sort of need to address it when you're talking about yes. this game, yeah. And it's I just think it's that's just a wee shame for Everton. That's all. Yeah, came I, back from three goals down. Uh, the final thing I'll say about this game is Everton's goal scorers were Graham Stewart with two. And the aforementioned Barry Horn. Uh, in the season, Graham Stewart played 26 matches. He scored three goals, so two of them were in this one. Uh, Barry Horn had 28 appearances. He scored one goal, which was that one. So, in the unlikeliest of unlikeliness, uh, this crazy match turned out 3 2, and Everton uh, stayed up. So, after. Everton had got that foothold back in the match with the penalty. The next goal to go in uh, is something of a surprise, really, because Chelsea, uh, much the favourites at home to Sheffield United, concede a goal, and Sheffield United go 1-0 up. And uh, at that point, a 17th in the table. They were not to finish 17th in the table, but we'll come to that in a moment. Because... One of the things that happened regularly in that season happened just before half-time, and it happened at Upton Park at the bowling ground, and Matthew Letizia scored a free kick for Southampton. Now, Scott, can you even begin to explain just how important Matthew Letizia was to Southampton staying up, and indeed the whole club of Southampton during this period in the late 80s, early 90s? 
Uh, it's, it's probably not possible, actually. Um, but I'll give it a go. I mean, this is everyone sort of bangs on about Letizia. His sort of greatest season was that season where he was just, you know, volleying or half volleying everything in from all angles and just, you know, to the tune of to the soundtrack of the Lightning Seeds. But. <laughs> But I wonder whether, like, this is his, like, this is, you know, actually his most important work was this season. Because it was a culmination of a great story as well. Like, Saints had, had sort of been lumbering about for a couple of years under Ian Branford and, you know, sort of fame, incredibly unpopular manager um, who, like, you know, one of the first things he did when he when he turned up, he, he sold Jimmy Case who was very popular and case asked him why and he and he just he was quite upfront about it he just said because i want to play the long ball game yes and he also benched matthew letizia and i you know the he was unpopular to the point where they got to the there's like the zenith data final and where they lost to nottingham forest but um I think they they staged a sort of two goal comeback in that game, but Branford just was booed relentlessly throughout that, <laughs> even though he'd come fairly close to them winning a trophy. Because, and it, I think this is like an important thing that sometimes people, especially who follow bigger clubs, miss that style of play. Well, you can have a good old cynical laugh at it when it, you know, when the pretensions are not, you know, the sort of pretentious ideals are not met um they're they're really important when you're unlikely to win a trophy year in year out and Southampton were always renowned for playing nice football um and suddenly they've got this Egypt who doesn't want to play (laughs) this genius you know English football's you know Gaza apart English football's greatest player of the of the 90s um so he was eventually like it, it was just untenable midway through this season he was just forced to resign um and they replaced him in the end with with Alan Ball and his his famous um thing was i think about 100 managers have done this but he got everyone in the uh, uh, you know on the on the training pitch put 10 players to one side, Letizia on the other, and he said, all of you have to give the ball to him. And that's what we're going to do from now on for the rest of the season. I remember the first training session, him and him and Laurie McMenemy took, they, um, they picked 10 players in the team, put them in the shape of the team they wanted to play. And um, I was stood there thinking, well, maybe I'm not going to get into this team. And uh, he just tapped me on the shoulder, put me in the middle of the pitch and said, um, this is the best player you've got in your team. Get the ball to him as often as you can, and uh, and he'll he'll win games for you. And uh, Matty looked at me, and and being the person he is, he was a little bit taken aback. He didn't want, you know, he's not that type of person. But I said, and whether you like it or not, Matty, you've got to understand that you are the best here. Who's got the problems? Who's got the pressure? And Matt said, me. I said, now can you handle that? He said, yes, I can. I felt on top of the world. That was just the sort of thing I've been waiting to hear a manager say for, for many years and uh, that just made me feel so good about myself and for the next 18 months uh, I played the best football of my career by far. And that just gave Letizia a, a huge boost 
Um, and he just went on on like a goal rampage. He he scored in Ball's first game away at Newcastle, and Newcastle were you know doing a really good job of announcing themselves as a you know as an important new team, having just been promoted. They you know they finished fourth, so they he inspires them to win away at Newcastle. A hat trick against Liverpool at home, um, a hat trick against Norwich in a absurd five four win. Like a couple of goals against Villa in a 4-1 win. Um, a goal against Blackburn, you know, again, they were chasing the title for a 3-1 win. And then he ends up with this um, this free kick here. Um, and he'll get another um, as they, you know, as Saints going to win, uh, win, going to draw 3 all, But um, but stay up. And I, I mean, this is just like a one-man... Um, force of nature, but it's but, but it's doubly good because it's not just um, it's not just saving Saints from relegation. It's also re-establishing Southampton's style of play. It's you know putting the Branford era in the past. It's giving the fans what they want. It's just a beautiful story, and it's kind of a shame that it, that it sort of gets. Ignored a wee bit because he scored so so many great goals a couple of seasons later. Yeah, I, I mean it's you know it's not a bad thing to obscure the story with, but even so, I mean I, I Natizia has a bit of a reputation as being you know a scorer of great goals rather than a great goal scorer, but he was actually both. He was a great goal scorer as well as a scorer of great goals, and. I remember, I remember this clear as day because I've still got somewhere on a shelf in the room in which I'm sitting now. A kind of Playfair annual from, I suspect it would be 1991 or something like that, and it was the season that Blackburn spent 3.3 million, I think, on Shearer, and it was the uh, was it 3.3 million they spent on Shearer? I think it was, but it was it was a British transfer record, and they. They they bought Shearer from Southampton. He was still a bit raw then, as a as a forward. And I remember making the case in the pub, almost certainly saying they bought the wrong one. They should have bought Letizia. And somebody said, "Well, well why is that?" I said, "Well, I looked in Playfair the other night, and the previous season Shearer had four uh, four goals. This is the pre the season prior to the one that had just finished when uh, they Blackburn bought Shearer. Is that he'd only had one good season? They said the season prior to that, Shearer had scored four and Letizia had scored 26 or something ridiculous like that. And obviously, you know, that's that's up there with me saying that Blood Brothers was never going to be a hit when I saw that in Liverpool in the early 80s and saying that mobile phones would never catch on because there was weren't queues outside phone boxes, so who needs to make a phone call on the run? So up there with those uh, brilliant aperçus was my one about um, Shearer and, and Letizia. Uh, but but you look at the, that season, I'll just read out some names and goals. So I'll give you the player's name, and I'll give you the goals they scored that season. Uh, Paul Allen, one. Frankie Bennett, one. Simon Charlton, one. Ian Dowie, 39 appearances, five. Jeff Kenner, two. Neil Madison, seven. Craig Maskell, one. Ken Moncow, four. Tommy Witherington, one. Matthew Letizia, 25. The, the, <laughs> I mean, it's a, 
it's such a skewed bell curve. And the fact is, as you've already pointed out, that the side played like that as well. I mean, it, it, it's unfair to say to some fine footballers that it was a one-man team. But certainly, the, the entire team were focused on getting the ball to Matthew Letizia so Letizia could do his thing. So just think of the pressure you've got there in the 38 games that he played that season. And he delivered 25 goals in those 38 games for a side that ended up finishing in 18th place, I think. Um, but, I mean, he would also he would also make the team tick um, and, and, you know, elevate the performance. I remember, like, uh, uh, the, I was at the Dell in 2000 um, and Liverpool went 3-0 up and Southampton were just like just nothing just completely useless um, and it just looked a breeze and with about maybe 30 minutes to go Letizia came on and like this was like you know um McKay McMuffin era, Letizia. Yeah, about 14 Let, stone. Yeah, he just waddled on, barely moved from the centre circle, completely changed the <laughs> the course of the game, just bossed, bossed everything, pinging <coughs> passes around, taking these amazing corners that Liverpool can deal with, end result, 3-0. Yeah. And, you know, and that was him when he was, like, kind of in his, in his dotage. And, of course, he was a you know, he would always do it, when they needed him, he was, you know, that fairy tale winner he scored at the Dell against Arsenal, the last mm. every game at the Dell. I mean, he, he was, he he has this reputation as some, like he's some sort of embellishment, but he was everything to that club. He was a goal scorer. He was a scorer of great goals. He could run the game. He would, you know, be part of the big moments. Um, and people say, oh, he wasted his career because he never won anything. No, <laughs> he had a fantastic career. He was a one-man club for 15 years and, you know, will be remembered for a lifetime in Southampton. Yes, yes, of course. I'll, I'll give a very quick uh, anecdote because I've told this before, so listeners may have heard it, um, and then I'll hand over to Mike. Uh, I was at the Dell uh, amongst the away supporters. Uh, we were at the side and we were quite low down and there was a corner came over and Letizia did something I've never seen a player do before or since because it was obviously hit to Letizia who was hanging back on, on about in the middle of the goal but on the edge of the penalty box and it was hit towards him but clearly it was hit too deep and so he was backpedalling quite quickly as the ball arrived about knee height but Backpedalling, he still managed to side foot a volley that hit the crossbar that would have been <laughs> the greatest goal any of us had ever seen. But just to have the imagination to do it and then to think, you know what, I can do it. And then to hit the bar. And I remember it's one of those things when you're away fan where you go quiet and then you look at each other and you think, wouldn't it have been great if that had gone in, <laughs> even though it was against your side? But that's the kind of thing he could do. And none of the other 21 players on the pitch would have come anywhere near uh, doing that. So, so yes, he wasn't just an ornament. He was he was everything at, at that club. And they called him Lagarde, and it was uh, not without uh, reason. Uh, Mike, have we left anything for you to say about Southampton or about Letizia standing head, shoulders, waist, uh, and flabby gut above the uh, <laughs> the other players? 
Uh, well, I mean, I can only kind of um, say less eloquently what you <laughs> both have said, really. Um, so, uh, Alan Ball coming in, I mean, it did pre- precipitate the greatest 18 months of Letitia's career. And it is great scrapbook season. Scott's right is, is 94-95. So that's got the famous goal at Ewood Park where he lobs um, uh, Tim Flowers yeah. from, you know, miles out. Yeah, points were, at the ball. Were... Somebody else go yeah. and get it. I've done my bit now. <laughs> but they were, they were never in the muck that season, no. um, Southampton. I remember he, sc- he scored another great goal at the Cup where he, he twisted Mark Wright both ways. And then you got this big sort of round of applause from the Cup after he stuck it away. And But he he could spend that season just decorating it with great goals. But I, think, I agree with Scott. I think his greatest gift to Southampton is the the second half of this season because to put it put some context on it so Southampton lost eight of their first nine games and I think 15 of their first 21 so at Christmas they were level with um, Swindon on points they're only ahead of them on goal difference you know so you know, I'm level with Swindon that season it's not, you know, it's not where you wanted to uh, <laughs> to be at all but when they sat um, uh, Bramfoot and and brought in Alan Ball, and you know there is that famous story of Ball just saying, "We'll get this guy on the ball." I mean, it was almost immediate. I mean, the the one that sticks out in my mind is the Liverpool game where he's been sort of played in the snow, um, where he, he puts a preposterous like half volley pass. Um, who would have been in goal for Liverpool? I can't remember, but it's it's in the first couple of minutes. Scored a hat trick. I think it was fifteen goals. Um, after Christmas that Letitia scored. Three of them were winners in a game. He got two in this game against West Ham, which were worth, a, you know, that's 10 points, basically. And it's yeah. um, the bottom line of it is, without him, they were almost certainly down this season. I mean, it's not it's not like a reach yeah. to say that at all. They were down if, without Letitia. His impact on the second half of that season for them was enormous. And Southampton, you... you we talked before about the enormity of Everton going down. I mean, Southampton, they're not Everton. You know, they don't have Everton's dimensions, resources, catchment area, all this. You know, if Southampton go, you know, that could be the end of them. You may maybe never see them again as well. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not a Southampton fan, so I don't know for sure. But I'm, I'm sure they love the, you know, the great uh, canon of goals that he scored. And the, the last one at the Dell and all that, it's all very... But I, I think this... For you know, I suppose you know fans that go and stuff as well, and he would have been there and during this season, him just single-handedly wrenching them out of the mire like this. I think I think I think is his greatest ever gift to the club. I mean, if there's any more or any further illustration needed, which I, I don't think there is by now, <laughs> but I went to see, um, and I can't even remember why this is very strange behaviour for me, but I went to see an England friendly in I think it was '95. Uh, it's sort of in the, in the build up to Euro '96. It was England Brazil at Wembley, and oh, yeah. I just I just remember um, I can't remember anything about the game. Letitia didn't play, but um, th- you know there was all the England fans doing the usual stuff. Oh, I hate Chelsea. Oh, yeah. oh, 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 yeah. and all that sort of thing. And then in this sort of corner, there was this pocket of like Brazilian fans, really just beautiful people, like sort of dancing and making a lot of noise with drums and having a great time. <laughs> and they just unfurled this banner and it just said, Brazil would play Letiz. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, they would, you know, yeah. and that's that's why Brazil sometimes lose 7-1 at home. Yeah. But it's also why, you know, people love watching them and when they're great, they're really, really great. 
because yeah, Brazil would have played the test. It's really strange how he never got a proper run. Yeah. Oh, well, it's kind of not in, a, in another way when you, but you know. Yeah, yeah, it is. We 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 must do. If we, I don't think we've done the Tizier as our player of the pod, but we will return. I'm sure in the future uh, to. Uh, Letizia, because there's much to, to say even beyond the words that we've put together uh, today. But let's move across to um, one of the games that lacked, I think, some of the drama, um, and it's Ipswich against Blackburn. Uh, Blackburn had uh, run out of steam with their challenge to Manchester United, and they were second, and they didn't quite have the flip-flops on. Although in those days that cliche did have a little bit more about it because there were teams that had little to play for that began to look like they had little to play for. And, you know, the Thursday drinking club had become the Friday drinking club as well, I think, in some instances. I'm not saying that about Blackburn. But Ipswich had just dropped like a stone. They were like Everton. They were the the team that every time you looked at the table on a Saturday night, they were a point lower or they were a position lower. So at the turn of the year, they had 30 points in 14th place. They were 11 clear of the drop. But at the start of the day, they were 19th on 42 points, just one clear of the drop. So the nil-nil was enough to to see them uh, safe in 19th place with 43 points. But um, this Ipswich were were not the kind of darlings of the of the Bobby Robson uh, era. Uh, they were they were a side that were I think much harder to love. And and Scott, you've got uh, some thoughts on on this Ipswich team and the contrast with the the one a decade or so earlier that was of course embellished by Eric Gates. Well, yeah, I mean, I, actually, I just have a thought, yes. um, which you've kind of touched on already, um, <laughs> yeah. to to just say that like that that Gates, um, you know, sort of double at Anfield that you discussed earlier, um, you know, that, it, that was part of a, you know, they were still an amazing side to watch. They were in a lot of relegation trouble, which they got out of in the end. And all the contemporary papers were really happy that, that Ipswich had sort of, Excre- you know, they managed to <coughs> excuse me, excuse me there. Um, managed to get themselves out of this bother. Um, but there's nothing w- w- with this story. It's like no one wanted them up. Like the the, the Guardian report of the uh, of this nil nil at Blackburn just drips with contempt. Um, you know. Ipswich have abandoned entertainment for crabbed caution. Another season with this attitude in Ipswich will surely go down. Which, you know, did happen. It was the season after they were getting belted 9-0, wasn't it? Yeah. By by United. Um, and it's just, you sort of think, how did, you know, we talk about, you know, Ever- the descent of Everton from like 1987 to now. But like, you know, Ipswich were winning the UEFA Cup. FA Cups, that great Bobby Robson team, and it, and even the sort of the tail, the long tail of the Robson team with the Eric Gates match you were talking about, they still entertained, and suddenly it's this, and you're thinking, oh my god, and I think they, I mean, did they win like one of their last ten, fifteen matches? It's something like that, yeah. 
it's an ast- like I think they picked up four or five points in the last ten or twelve, and still managed to scrape up. And you're thinking, oh my god, that's that, that's just despicable behaviour. Yeah. yeah, I think they they kind it, of. It's, um, it's such a shame for such a lovely club that have like you know yeah. so many great teams and stories over the over the years. Otherwise, but this one not so much. Yeah, to me they're they're the kind of first team who embody that idea of like we'll target the one place above the relegation zone, and you know that'll be the limit of our grim ambition is just to <laughs> just, just just to try and you know hit that target and. Uh, you know, have no 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 other kind of you know responsibilities to try and do anything other than that. It was um, yeah, it was a grim season, and then um, it almost feels like they stayed up by accident. You know, <laughs> despite themselves, <laughs> they they somehow managed to um, to uh, stay in the division. I mean, it would affect it, you know, and it it would be. Well, we'll come on to it in a second, but it would effectively be Chelsea that would um, you know keep keep them in the Premier League. So it wasn't. The, you know, wasn't even of their doing. They just um, they tanked, but they didn't tank quite far enough to go down. But um, you know, they certainly did the next season. Yeah, I mean, there's another line here by Stephen Beerley in the Guardian, where he says that the um, Mick McGiven, the manager, um, was talking darkly of next season when four teams would be relegated. Half the division could be involved on the final day, is the quote. Mm. And then Beerley says, "Oh dear, Mick." Better abandon this season's ploy of playing one striker then, far too adventurous. Yeah, it's worth looking at the at the goals because um you've got you've got John Walk in his third spell at, at Ipswich and he's thirty six years old, but he still plays thirty eight of the forty two games. But those lung bursting runs arriving late uh, into the box, Terry McDermott style, have brought him so many goals in the glory days at Ipswich and then at Liverpool have long gone. He scores three goals in that time. You've got Chris Kiwomia, um, who scores five in 34. Uh, nobody else manages more than than John Walks three. There's three for David Linegan, no doubt, from set pieces. Uh, and three from uh, Paul Mason, a midfielder that I confess I can't remember. But the top scorer is Ian Marshall uh, with 10. Now, for all that that our glorious founder, Lee Calvert, will will love Ian Marshall (laughs) for his days at at Oldham, it's a step down from the days of Gates and Mariner, Buren and Tyson, and and some of those beautiful technicians that that played under, under Bobby Robson there. Because... He played at Everton as well, Ian Marshall. He was a converted centre half, but he was a bludgeon. He was a blunderbuss of a centre forward, rather than a rather than the kind of of player you associate with with Ipswich. And I think the question is not so much how did they manage to win only one of their uh, last eleven matches, but how did they accumulate enough points to get thirty in the in the first <laughs> half of the season? Um, but as you say, you know the, the the time caught up with them, and and in one of those seasons when there was an adjustment to the Premier League, when it went down from twenty two to I think twenty teams, one of the ones that went was was Ipswich, and I think they've I been, mean, the thing, they've been back the once thing... or twice since, but not often, is it? Go on, Scott. Sorry, Gary, I didn't right. mean to jump in there, no, but um, 
I mean, all I was going to say was that, you know, things are allowed to go tits up in football. Things are, you know, you're allowed to get worse. It happens. Like Ipswich won the league in, what, 62. Mm. They were relegated two years after in, like, rock bottom last place. But at least they went down trying to play football. I mean, it was football that had been long sussed out. But they still tried to play a good game. Just... I've never quite understood this. Oh, it's probably more understandable now just because of the pure money aspect, but I've never quite mm. understood this survival at all costs. Like Mike says, you know, if the limit of your ambition is to finish one place above the relegation zone, uh, you know, you might as well just get yourself relegated and have fun in the in the division below. Yeah, a, a mate of mine is a big Swansea fan. And he says we have far more fun in the Championship than we do in the Premier League for that for that very reason. I, I mean, I've, I've talked long enough about Everton. For, for Everton, it's bound up in the identity of the city and the identity of the of the fans. And for Evertonians, I think it would be a disaster. And no, no Evertonian would say, let's have some fun in the championship. They'd say, how come we're not playing <laughs> Liverpool and Manchester United? Um, yeah. But, but that shows that there's a diversity in fan cultures with within clubs. And, uh, you know, I, I do think you have a point that there's a kind of grimness, a kind of Mourinho-like everybody behind the ball and defend for the 1-0. If, that, if that's a successful season, then, you know, that's bad. Because yeah, surviving has to be a, a springboard to bring in through two or three young players the next season, making one or two lucky signings, you know, the way Everton did when Tim Cale came. Nobody thought he was going to be the player he, he turned out to be, I tell you that. And, um, <laughs> you know, but if if that's what it is, if it gets into that rut where what you're, you're looking to do is, is you know, stay there with Dion Dublin's finger in the air, Coventry City staying up, then it catches up with you, you know, and, and um, Coventry... Coventry, uh, the story of Coventry since they had those seasons of staying up is is perhaps uh, an important one. But let's move to the side that did actually go down, <coughs> and they were only going down right at the end of the the, the day. Um, at the start of the year, they were in eighteenth. They were twenty one points two above the dropped zone, and um, it uh, sorry uh, that was at the turn of the year. And by the start of the day, they hadn't really changed that much. They were still in 18th. They were on 42 points. They were 1.5 goals above the drop zone. But they were up against a very decent Chelsea side, but a Chelsea side who might have been distracted. And um, to Evertonian's eternal gratitude, they were not distracted. And they beat Sheffield United 3-2. And Sheffield United in somewhat somewhat, um, well, tragic is too strong a word, but in terms of football, tragic circumstances, they were relegated right at the death. <laughs> Excuse me. So, um, Mike, do you want to say a bit about Sheffield United? Yeah, well, I mean, well, what happened to them on this day was just <laughs> just extraordinary, really. I mean, uh, there's a wonderful, we'll put the YouTube link up when... Um, when we do put this out, but there's, there's a wonderful uh, little montage of all the goals we've been talking about today as they're going in and how it's changing the league table. And Sheffield United are safe all day. I mean, it's a point at half time because uh, they, they've gone 1-0 up, where they're actually 17th in the league. Yeah. 
and um, they they only go into the relegation zone in in injury time at Stamford Bridge. So it's um, I think it's one of the most dramatic relegations um, that I've ever seen, certainly. Um, and it's like the, the 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 goal that puts them down as well. Just it just feels avoidable, really. And you know, it's, it's the cross comes in, flicks on for some reason. Someone's um, Steen isn't. It? It's completely unmarked to the back post, and he slightly scuffs a volley that just creeps in um, at the near post, and um, and yeah, they're gone. And it's a, a Chelsea team that you know had a, had a cup final to think on the following week. So, you know, on the face of it, didn't have anything other to play for, really. But I just, I think it, for, for players, I think it, you certainly see this a lot. It it can be a bit of a motivation. We talked about Schadenfreude earlier on about, you know, if you can't really go up or down in the league, but if you can put the team you're playing down, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure that's a motivating factor. Um, it, even if it's, you know, it's it, it can feel and sound a bit, uh, bit sadistic. <laughs> Um, but yeah, incredible. Safe, safe all day, all the way through to the very last sixty seconds of the season, and then, uh, and then in, in a moment gone. It's it's just um, the air of desolation after it. I remember, I remember um, I talked before about the um, the match of the day clip where they went inside the dressing room and learned their fate because you know there's no one in the dugout scrolling through Twitter to get the. Uh, yeah, the scores from the other matches and stuff. Um, so even when they left the pitch, they didn't know that they were down. You know, they they assumed that, or well, even if they'd lost, the other combinations of results might have uh, saved them. But um, yeah, amazing. I don't know whether it's fate. I don't know whether it's one of those things that happened. But it was a terrible feeling to get relegated in that way with more or less the last kick of the game. Had we been losing 2-0 at Chelsea and we knew the results, we'd have known our destiny. But at no time were we really ever relegated until about the last minute of any of those games. And uh, these things happen in football. You know, Arsenal won the championship a few years ago at Liverpool in that way. It's a very, very cruel way. And I can assure you, myself and the players, and I know the fans, were, were all very, very disappointed, upset and, well, gutted really to say the least it wasn't what we expected and it was really a kick that we didn't expect to happen yeah I mean they call sport the great unscripted drama and it's amazing how often these situations arise where you think if you were sitting down and writing it you think that's a bit cheesy you know it's are we really going to do it you know in in injury time the last kick are we really going to have those disappointed fans and the the players not knowing until they're in the dressing room and yet somehow sport seems to do this it seems to to certainly before money sort of squashes so much out of it I don't think it squashed everything out of football you wouldn't have Leicester's season in 2016 with if it was just about the money but you know businesses as we've seen with the European Super League they don't like jeopardy and fans do as long as it's somebody else's jeopardy mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it's it's really that 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 makes sport different you don't know what's going to happen next and the script was was laid out why should why should Chelsea bust a gut against Sheffield United there's no historical enmity among some you might even say that they might want to put away a side like like Everton who in in the next three years might have have come back uh the way the way uh the bigger sides do and you know to remove a, a potential rival may may have interested mm. them, but um, it just it just does the, these things, and 
and there we are with with Sheffield United. Um, they were they were level with under fifteen minutes to go, and they were safe. But the last ten minutes uh, changed everything for them, and they didn't just go down; they went down second bottom uh, by a point because uh, they finished twentieth. Ipswich uh, finished ninety. No, sorry, they went down third bottom. Uh, they went up, but a whole point different from uh, Ipswich, who had an inferior. Uh, goal difference. I mean, it's it's a wider point, Scott, but you've already given the historical materialist analysis uh, one, so I'm going to throw out a, a bigger one for you. Because we're fans, do we just read these narratives into into these events, or, or are they somehow by accident or by evolution? Are they are they just in sport where where in a 42 game season? You know what's that? Four thousand minutes or more of football. It's the last minute that decides it. Well, I mean, Bassett himself said. I mean, he was quite um, quite relaxed about the whole thing. He was. He did the whole. You know, this is a forty-two game season shtick. Yeah. You, see, you know, so uh, it's you know it didn't just happen here at this match. At this ground in this minute, I mean, he also said, "Oh my God, the whole season's gone up in smoke <laughs> in one moment." But he looked at the bigger picture, so he was kind of like giving—I suppose he was kind of giving both sides of the story. That we do apply that narrative to, but I mean, it's, but it's unavoidable. I mean, this is the thing: the like, how do you decide? Of course, it's over forty-two. Um, forty-two games, but you don't. They don't just publish the league table once all the mat fixtures have been completed in May. Oh, by the way, this is how it all looks yeah. now. It's like published every every week, and so it's that's half the fun. That's it's the natural way to do it. I mean, it's and I think it was just naturally. It just happened. It like organic, organically happened this way. When the football, the first season of the football league, they didn't know how they were gonna arrange and decide the title. The whole win loss draw point system, the table, hadn't quite been sorted out yet. That happened as the season, the first season progressed. So. We naturally did that as you know, as football fans, as supporters, journalists, whatever. It just organically happened that you need this week by week story for it all to make sense. So yeah, I mean, professionally speaking, it's uh, you know, it's it's forty two games in the round, and it just wasn't lost when Mark Steen scored, but it was. But it was. Yeah. 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 <laughs> If I could, um, go on, Mike. Yeah, if I could just touch. I mean, if you compare it, if you can have a pantheon of um, goals that relegate teams, I don't know if you can, but (laughs) the the Steen goal, it is, it it is in there with you know things like that that Dennis Law back heel, and you know that that didn't put United down. I mean, they they were down anyway, or you know the Radian Teach goal that put City down in eighty three. I mean, you know. City could have picked up points in any of the other 41 games. Of course they could have. And, you, and you know, you can make that argument about it. But that um, while it's still recoverable, you know, while you've still got that chance, and if, if it does come down to that 
final day and and that's the moment where it goes i mean yeah of course of course that's a huge um you know a huge resonant moment and it's um i think i think it's it's easier to i think look back and try and take the broader view because it's such a desolate moment i said well my club's never been relegated i don't know this but i mean you can you can see it when you see it happen to other teams it's it's almost like too unbearable to contemplate you know being relegated in um in a single moment like that but um yeah the steam though is sorry go scott no no sorry i didn't mean to interrupt go on mike please go Uh, on Oh, sorry. I was just uh, yeah. I mean, the the Steen goal it is. Um, it I think it is the nineties equivalent of that um, that Radiantish goal because I think that I think that was scored with four minutes to go, um, and it's at Main Road as well. And it's you know it's um, and and that puts City down and keeps looting up. It's that's I mean that was that's an extraordinary moment. And um, mm. yeah, I, would, I think that this the Steen. Uh, goal I think is the 90s um, or the nearest equivalent to that Well you also mentioned the the Dennis Law thing and I think that's mm. um, you know you're right it didn't relegate United but again it's, it's a like, symbolism you know, isn't it yeah. yeah and it doesn't matter <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't matter if people get that wrong really because it's as you say it's a symbolism it's the story um, Dennis has done it. The fact that it was his last ever kick in football, he well, league football, he walked straight off the park. Um, it kind of, if you start bringing like Norwich City and Birmingham City and their results into the story, it's a bit, ah, come on, it's not really about that at all, is it? It's about United, it's about Dennis Law. Um, it, it, you know, even if we have to tweak that narrative a bit, so we tweak the narrative in 1974. Um, but we steadfastly stick by the chronology in 1994 because both stories are better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's... yeah, and I, I would I would just say on that. I mean, so if if you don't believe that moment is, you know, that United's relegation was more than just that one moment, just have a look at Dennis Law's reaction. I mean, mm. yeah, he he knows the enormity of that um, moment. You know, even even if it does transpire that technically it didn't relegate United, it, it's it speaks to a bigger story, and it's you know it speaks to a wider pattern of uh, United's decline, and you know it's tied in with why he left the club and all these other things. So it's um, and and you can you can see that on his face as he's um, walking off, and then then it turns out that, you know it it was his last ever kick of a kick of a football. It's um, yeah, it's just it's an extraordinary story. There's a there's a friend I have who's a cricket writer. Um, he's based in uh, I think he's an engineer in in Berkeley, uh, California, and he absolutely will not allow this idea of a narrative. He says in cricket every ball is an event, and you can score a, a six off that ball or be out off the next ball. It's all just. It, we impose narratives where they don't exist. You know, each each ball is worth six, or it's worth naught, or it's worth a wicket, depending on what happens. But I'm I'm like you guys, whether it's artifice, and I'm sure there's some sort of French philosophers on the left bank in the 1960s who were, you know, sing, smoking gold while with Jacques Derrida and so on, who who would look at these kind of 
ideas of, of narrative structure and form and, and either say that they are the most important thing or that they do not exist. But for us, as football fans, as sport fans, I think they're, they're very important. We need the symbols, we need the narrative, we need to believe that in that moment that Sheffield United's future hung in the balance and Mark Steen miss kicks it and it goes past the post and you know it's a sliding doors moment because in our lives at, um... in our lives we know that that happens in our lives we know that I walked into a job center because I was going to see a movie that I really didn't want to see in 1982 and that got me a job in Littlewoods uh, in Liverpool, which meant that I had some experience of working in retail, which when I left my uh, university course in 86 meant I got a job at Dorothy Perkins, got me into fashion, and so on and so on and so on and so on. And we know that there are these, these disparate events that come together to form a narrative. And we may not be able to see where those strands lie in the future, although we can often see strands, but we sure can see them working backwards and think, well, if we didn't do that, if we didn't take that chance, if we hadn't had that serendipitous moment, then our lives would be different. And I think that's exactly the same with with football, and it's thrown into its sharpest focus on the final day of the season where these strands are clearer to see in terms of what the future may bring at the end of the 90 minutes. And yet when it's happening, of course, the three points you get on the last day against Wimbledon are equal to the three points we got on the first day, uh, Everton playing in that season. But it's that's not that's missing so much. Sorry, Mike, I cut across you. Oh, yeah. I, was, I mean, you could apply it to any sport, really. I mean, yeah. You know, Steve, Steve Davis lost 17 other frames to Dennis Taylor, but I mean... You, you're only going to remember the, you know, the Blackpool finish. And sport is—it's just part of its appeal, isn't it? It's the—it's the climactic, you know, nature of it. And at the other end of the scale, you know, like, to use Man City as an example again, when Aguero scored his goal, I mean, you know, eighty-six of the points they got to win that title didn't come on that day. But you know, the final three were, were secured with, um, you know, the last kick of the match, and it's uh, it, that's part of sports great pull isn't it that yeah. you know and it's why you invest in a season isn't it it's why you it's why you know you you follow it for that length of time is it, it crescendos you know april and may with these um often with these kind of like you know really memorable climactic experiences. Well, I, I remember reading something that said that the the real genius of tennis is its scoring system but because it has these games that only last four points, you get these critical points coming up over and over again, and you have the juices and so on, and you can be match point down, and ten minutes later you've won the match, and a match that lasts four hours. And Tennis has almost been structured in a way that that keeps giving those climactic moments over and over again. And I know some people who don't like tennis, partly because it, it, it keeps it keeps it avoids the delayed gratification that those those of us who enjoy sort of theatre and enjoy the length of a test match or a test series or a, a grand tour cycling, that, that, that we appreciate and we like that delayed gratification, whereas tennis is structured in such a way that these keep coming up over and over again. And you, you get it with darts, don't you, with the sets they have in darts mm-hmm. and stuff like this. But you, you don't always get it, and you know what football's been very good at. I think in terms, 
even even to today is avoiding too many rule changes to make goals too frequent to make seasons too artificial to guarantee you know that the, well they do guarantee the playoffs don't they for for promotion but they don't they don't guarantee a kind of final match and I'm still a little wary of of county cricket with its sort of Bob Willis trophy final, the way there's a Sheffield Shield final and so on. Mm. The idea of guaranteeing a, a, a do-or-die end of a, a tournament, it kind of goes a little against the grain of the of the British way of, of um, organising sporting uh, merit. Is that too much, Scott? Or, or, or no, is I mean, it, I, th- I think the, you know, the genius of, of sport, though, is that even if it's engineered to within an inch of its life you know the super bowl it can yeah. like it can either be just like a washout with one team scoring like 40 odd points like it used to be in the sort of 80s and 90s quite often or you know you'll have these amazing runner super bowls that we had recently that were extremely exciting and back and forth and then suddenly you the, there was that one where there was like about 10 points scored in it, and you're thinking, oh, for Christ's sake. Yeah. Um, you know, even then, sport kind of manufactures a way, like sometimes you're just not going to get that dramatic denouement. It's going to be a damp squib, but that's fine. It has to be like that because if it's, if it's like a, you know, whirlwind, amazing, if every match is amazing, it, if every final day of the season is a nail biter with like loads of teams going up from seventeenth to twenty first and up and down again. If every snooker final ends up on the black ball in the last frame, then none of it's special anymore. Well, the, the, and and you know that is the beauty. But, uh, but you know even even the days the final days we've had in the Premier Premier League, when nothing much happens can still like pull something out you're thinking oh my god i mean i think i, I remember like a few years ago there was there was that was I'm pretty sure nothing else of great interest happened on the final day i'll probably be proved wrong but it was the day that stoke um beat liverpool 6-1 yeah and this is and this is like steve steven you know part of steven gerrard's amazing like clown car um you know final parade when he lost the last game at home against Palace, and then it was six-one down, and the, you know there was a, that was a still a jaw-dropping thing. It didn't mean anything, but it was jaw-dropping because well, what does this mean for like a big club? Doesn't normally this doesn't normally happen. What's it going to mean next season for Brendan Rodgers? How are we going to judge the Gerrard legacy? There's, you know, there's always something. Yeah, there'll be a, if nothing happens on the final day this year. Like we'll be thinking, right? Okay, what's, what does this mean for Tottenham next season? Who's going to be the manager? That might be a little bit more gossipy and like have less sort of weight down the years, but it'll it'll still be fun when it happens. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just finish because I think I may be preaching to the choir here, but I. <laughs> I have friends who are football fans, but they're also kind of fans of things like, you know, the world wrestling entertainment and so on. And they talk in the same way about the WWE as they talk about Premier League football or the World Cup or something. And I feel like saying, to them, but, but, you know, that's scripted. You know, I can, I can go and watch Chekhov if I want sort of that. 
and yet they they don't they're younger obviously but they don't seem to make that that difference and i think it it comes most strongly with you know that they're now talking about the or i heard on the radio today they they're talking about the excitement of the talks that will lead to the match between anthony joshua and tyson fury and <clears throat> the thing doesn't need to sell itself and yet you'll get this tremendous sort of build up and constant rat-a-tat-tat of, of stuff and we the whole point of it is we don't know what's going to happen but somehow especially you know maybe this is something behind the, the thoughts of of that guy at uh, uefa or fifa whatever it was saying that kids are going to be watching 10 minute clips and we need to make everything shorter uh. and it's behind the hundred and so on somehow we, we feel we have to guarantee that we get you know this this gratifying playoff uh, payoff that the the kind of test audiences that go and see the the Marvel Universe films and the and the uh, other stuff where they have to have this enormous fight at the end where the hero wins and we don't what we need is unpredictability and jeopardy and if it happens it happens because when it does happen it's so much more satisfying that it does now am i preaching to the choir or is that just too romantic a, a notion of sport versus entertainment My no thoughts. i agree and um that's what's why i think they all of that kind of nonsense that came out with the um the esl about like trying to manufacture the game to appeal to uh the kids that aren't watching it and i is, is it because of their attention spans? Well, have you made the sport more accessible so they could actually go and see it? I yeah. think that, that, maybe that would make an enormous difference. You know, football sustained itself for you know, over 150 years and become the biggest... You know, there's nothing... You can argue about, you know, tweaks in rule changes like the daft handball war and, the and you know, go down the road of VAR, but the actual product itself is just, you know an almost ceaseless supply of, um, you know, brilliant, dramatic moments that punctuate games and seasons and, you know, and always has been and finds new ways to surprise you and has, uh, will always have the capacity to do that precisely because it isn't scripted, you know, because um, it conjures up scenarios that you just wouldn't think of. Yeah, indeed. So let's have a look at some of the scenarios that happened uh, as we wrap up our Nessendorma look at the final day of the 93-94 season. Let's have a look at the scenarios that played out for, um, well, I'm tempted to say the protagonists, but you're only allowed one protagonist in in drama theory, but we seem to have five protagonists, the five, the five <laughs> clubs that were in <laughs> jeopardy. So um, the ones that, that did go down, so... Sheffield United went down with a heartbreaking last kick and and they were to to spend more time out of the top flight than in the top flight and have just completed this kind of uh, disastrous season after their most successful season. Um, Scott, with a, a Sheffield United, are they are they doomed forever to be uh, a, a yo-yo club, albeit on a slower cycle than than perhaps a, a Norwich City? Um, well, I, yeah, I mean, I guess so, but there's always something around the corner that you just don't know what, um, like, I mean, I don't think, I mean, I'm guessing that most of us wouldn't have predicted a Chelsea-Manchester City Champions League final 
back in January. <laughs> um, but you certainly wouldn't have like been calling for it in the year 2000. Um, so you don't know who's going to rock up and who's going to buy who or what or, you know, we're back to the old external forces and just yeah. the being in the right place at the right time, which all all of the big clubs um, have been in some way or another, whether it's like just managing to buy the the right player that changed everything or, you know, the, certain media things, money, you know, financial things. So, yeah, I mean, all, all things being equal at, at the moment, nothing changing. Yeah, of course it isn't for that, but... You just, you know, you don't know. It just, I mean, it might be in 15 years' time that, like, all that sort of merger talk that was, like, de rigueur in the 70s and 80s, maybe that'll rear its head again. Suddenly there'll be a Sheffield team. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe, in, we don't, it's unlikely, but maybe in 30 years' time, football fans aren't up in arms about that sort of thing anymore um, for whatever reason. You just don't know. It, it does seem strange, doesn't it, that a, a big industrial city in the in the heartland with the kind of history, you know, Sheffield Wednesday wearing its history literally in its its name. The the merchants who founded the uh, club played on a Wednesday afternoon. It was early closing day at the at the markets, and um, for both of those clubs to have spent so much time out of the top flight of of English football it does seem. Strange, you know, big grounds, big uh, support, uh, and yet both clubs seem to spend more time out of the top flight than in the top flight. Rather different matter at Oldham. Um, Oldham, another old industrial heartland there, the cotton mills that largely have gone now. Um, You can see Fred Dibnar pulling the chimneys down, still on YouTube uh, now. But Oldham, they innovated with the plastic pitch, as you already mentioned, Mike, I think they, they were punching above their weight, but once they sank, they've they've pretty much sunk since then. Is that is that right? Is that fair? Yeah, well, well I mean, um, when we did our Oldham special um, with Lee and Rob, I think a couple of years ago now, um, Lee, Lee uh, did a lovely little two-minute um, synopsis of what's happened to Oldham um, since they were relegated in this season, and he, he put the music to our tune behind it as he did it. Which, <laughs> so it was uh, Simon Bates. Yeah, yeah but um, yeah, I mean, it was so the the Premier League hadn't seen them again. Sheffield United went out of the top division for twelve years. Twelve um, years, wow! And it just shows you how it, how difficult it is, how the Premier League's changed things in terms of you know if you do go down, how difficult it can be to. Recover. I think Everton fans on this day, and I think looking back now, must have breathed a huge sigh of, uh, ex, you know, exhaled. Yeah. <laughs> with some amount of relief. Um, yeah, I mean, what would have happened if they'd have gone? I know Everton kind of flirted with it a couple of years later as yeah, well, but I think this is the last time. I don't want to get into a debate about who, what constitutes a big club, but you know, the upper echelon of big clubs, the big five. I think, I don't think any of them has have been this near to the trapdoor since I think Spurs, Spurs maybe were uh, close a couple of games away from it but then kind of pulled themselves out I think at the end of 97-98 I think when they brought um, uh, Quinsman back but um, 
yeah, it's just it's hard to imagine a club of Everton's stature and history being in this kind of um, situation again. So it, sp- it speaks to a time, I think, this this uh, season of um, the Premier League was still forming itself. So there was still some kind of fluidity um, to the whole structure of English football that meant Everton could get in this kind of. Um, this kind of uh, trouble, but um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you're no better than me, Gary. But I don't think they've sailed this close to the wind since, have they? No, I don't. I don't think so. And you're right about Everton being, you know, one of the the big five because I think Everton's chairman Philip Carter, I think he was widely sort of acknowledged as the architect of the the Premier mm. League. You know, I think David Dean at, uh, at Arsenal was a mover and shaker as well. But I think Carter was the one of the driving forces uh, behind it, and you know, Everton fans of of a certain age, myself included, were aghast at the European uh, Super League. Um, the idea of of playing a kind of Liverpool's weekend eleven um, to see, you know, if, if Liverpool would go from thirteenth to eleventh with their uh, under twenty ones. Uh, as a derby game uh, was just too horrendous to contemplate. But of a certain age, we knew that um, that a generation or two earlier, Everton had been uh, movers and shakers in something which was not as egregious by any means, but nevertheless was motivated by some of those same uh, atavistic uh, desire for power and and greed and lack of of jeopardy, or mitigation of jeopardy, I should say, rather than lack of jeopardy. It wasn't as horrendous as the proposed structure for the ESL. Um, But I think that, that rather dampened, uh, I think, and correctly so, dampened some of the um, schadenfreude of of Everton uh, fans when it collapsed. And I think, I mean, I may be wrong in this because I know Everton's chairman, Mashiri, has been one of the people who've called for points deductions, but it certainly certainly meant that initially I I thought that the, the, the punishments need to be need to be there for dissuading because if you if you allow plotters to have a coup and then don't punish the plotters the plotters come back and get you there needs to be something but I certainly don't hold with things like um, uh, being chucked out of the Champions League and all that kind of stuff because uh, or indeed really stringent points deductions because uh, I don't think Everton would have done it necessarily if they'd been asked obviously they wouldn't have been asked but Two generations ago, they weren't just asked; they were the they were the people doing the asking. So I think we have to be wary of that. So I think it was a, a time when one of the traditional powerhouses of of English football, um, although there have been many over the years. You know, Huddersfield Town won three times, didn't he, in the nineteen thirties? So uh, again, there are multiple narratives that can drive different storylines here. But I don't think, aside from the Gareth Farrelly time, I don't think Tottenham. Arsenal, Everton, Manchester United, um, have, have uh, Liverpool have come close, but it was certainly close on that day. Um, so let's let's uh, look at the the other uh, two clubs. Um, Ipswich survived, but went down the, the next year, and Ipswich really that they're, they're kind of a, a a provincial town, a bit like Southampton. We could probably do the two of them together who will have seasons where the money comes together, the team come together, the coaching comes together, but you get the feeling that their, their grip uh, on a, 
on a place in the at the top table is is always a little tenuous, and we've kind of seen that this season where Southampton had a fantastic start under Hasselhutl, but have slid backwards and might have been in a bit of relegation trouble themselves. I mean, outside of an oligarch coming along, uh, Ipswich and Southampton always going to be kind of selling clubs that need to discover players in order to avoid relegation trouble and uh, a season or two or sometimes more than that in the in the lower division is that is that the fate that we saw them miss in 94 but certainly came to bite them in subsequent years scott yeah i guess so it's interesting that you mentioned ralph hassenhutl there because in this very season we're talking about everton tried to buy him yes <laughs> Um, and he really, and Chelsea tried to buy him as well, and he really wanted to come. He really wanted to come over because he saw himself as a, like a, you know, a typically English striker. It yeah. would suit his his style. Um, was he at for some reason, Was he Innsbruck or somewhere like I that? I think he was uh, Vienna, Austria, yeah, Vienna, maybe Austria, Vienna. And I can't remember. He he went somewhere else. He in Austria, I think, in the end. So I'm not quite sure whether his agent was doing a too good a job or a really bad job. <laughs> well, the word that <laughs> many... But, but, but the move didn't happen, but yeah. the talk was there. Yeah, the word that many European players around, even, you know, it doesn't seem that long ago, certainly not to me, 93, 94, and yet the, the landscape was very much still British with a few Europeans scattered about. So, yeah... But yeah, that would have been an interesting one. It would have been would have been fun to get at uh, a certain tall German player at Mainz. That would have been fun, but uh, <laughs> that, that that didn't happen either. No. Yeah. So at uh, the provincial, is this a kind of you? Know, you look at it. You look at the three that have gone down: Swindon, Oldham, and Sheffield. The the and then the ones that stayed up: Ipswich, Southampton, and Everton. And you look at them, and the, the two big industrial sides there: Everton and Sheffield United. That or the old industrial cities, despite the fact that kind of you know post industrialization was very much underway at this time. Uh, they're the ones who probably spent more time uh, in the Premier League, whereas the others have have faded either very badly, like Oldham, or have gone up and down a bit, like uh, Ipswich and Southampton. Um, is this is this mitigating against our discussion that that the narratives are, are unpredictable? Um, I don't know. Maybe that's a different kind of podcast from the one we're doing now, and you get into tedious talk about money, which we largely avoid mm-hmm. on Ness and Dorma. I mean, just as a quick <laughs> one, like if 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 you look at the whole, like you know, who's won the title from the year dot up until now. It's nearly always teams from clubs from big cities. Yeah. Um, there's not that many provincial sides have won it, and and you're also like getting into that very weird area of actually what is provincial. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. they're pretty much all cities, but you know the smaller teams like or the smaller clubs like Burnley and Ipswich were winning titles in you know in the early sixties. You would have, you know. Um, Derby were smallish, but you know, and winning titles in the seventies. But you know, they were still a big club in the thirties and forties. It's in that sense, a lot of it has been quite constant. It's just a matter of which name is the biggest yeah. of the big cities at mm. the time. Um, so I, I guess, in that sense, unless something weird 
you know, someone, dis- an oligarch, decided to take a weird gamble on a, on a, patronisingly call a provincial side, then your Southamptons and Ipswiches are always going to have this sort of um, status where they're they can, they can have a healthy top flight existence if they want. Southampton pretty much have done for the most mm-hmm. part since the yeah. since the sixties, really, give or take a few seasons. Um, but they're always going to be just there, never quite at the top. Well, South, Southampton actually, so they by staying up, it was part of a twenty-seven-year unbroken run in the um, in the top flight. I think. Yeah. And uh, yeah. if you if you look at how they've remodelled themselves, I mean, with St Mary's, and you know they've got that great academy there, and they, they keep having to like you know sell players off. But um, I, I like this. I love this era of Southampton because it's and they're playing at the Dell as well, while yeah, all the these Dale, other kind of yeah. grounds are being, you know, redesigned for the you know brand new shiny Premier League. So increasingly, Southampton, while they're at the Dell, just felt like an anachronism, yeah. you know, like a bit of a, a bit of a two fingers to what the rest of the league was doing. And the fact that you know we've been mentioning before, but the fact Letitia wouldn't leave, you know, he'd. Um, he stayed there, and just, just be, you know, that's why he's a folk hero in um, Southampton. I mean, players of that calibre now at Southampton get moved on very, you know, very close to the, the, the nature of modern football now. But um, mm. yeah, he did. He, like, even as late as um, you know this season, Southampton, they did feel like a bit of a throwback, given the way that the rest of the league was changing. I think. I think that's so. And on that point, we'll probably wrap it up having covered ground from the early days of the formation of uh, the Football League and uh, structures of league tables, throwing it all the way forward to the oligarchs in their helicopter spotting a a, a pad Battersea where there wasn't one anywhere near Tottenham and deciding to buy Chelsea instead of Tottenham. Uh, So the apocryphal story goes. Uh, So it remains only for me to thank... Uh, Scott Murray, thank you very much, Scott. Thank you, sir. Uh, to thank Mike Gibbons, thank you very much, Mike. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Scott. In the background, we've got Lee Calvert pressing buttons and avoiding <laughs> all of the uh, edit points uh, that that we uh, that I, in the main, uh, failed to to get right. I've been Gary Naylor, but of course, we thank most of all yourselves, our listeners. Uh, Hope you enjoyed this episode of Ness and Dorma, and we'll be back soon with more 80s and 90s red-hot football chat, as David Mellor used to say. Bye for now. Sports Social Podcast Network.